So one of the guys I worked with said that his father was driving down the 75 in Michigan a few years back, and he saw a stranded limo on the side of the road. So he thought that uh, the limousine might be in need of some help. So he pulls over and he walks to the driver's side window of the limo and he offers his cell phone. So the driver gratefully accepted it and let him know that the car's own phone was not working properly. So after they call for assistance, the driver asks if the guy wants to meet the famous people inside the limousine. And of course he does. So he's promptly introduced to Donald Trump and his wife Ivana. So Mr. Trump extends his appreciation and he inquires if there's anything that he and his wife can do for this man. So after a moment, he lets the Trumps know that the best thing they could do would be to send his wife flowers uh, because his wife would be absolutely thrilled to get flowers from the famous Trumps. So Mr. Trump says that he'll do just that. And after the limousine was serviced, they happily drive away. A few months later, uh, one morning, the man and his wife are eating breakfast at home and their doorbell rings. Uh, the wife answers the door and she finds a gigantic flower arrangement uh, being delivered. After getting the arrangement in the door, they both th- read the attached card that says, thank you very much for the help. We've paid off your mortgage, Donald and Ivana Trump. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This they start telling you stories of the old. Country. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American history. A war. story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again, what our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Welcome all of you back. We hope you had a great Halloween and Halloween month. We do. We hope that we provided you with some good cathartic energy with all of our cursing. But now, my little ducks, my little nubbins. Little plums. My little plums. Um, you're all back, and I have to tell you that I have been longing to do a weekly affirmation. So I want you to breathe in deeply and concentrate on these words. We got to install microwave ovens, custom kitchen deliveries. Is this like a Home Depot? We've got to move these refrigerators. We've got to move these color TVs. Oh, yes. This week, we're getting money for nothing and chicks for free. And before we get there, we do want to thank all of you for coming back, for leaving ratings and reviews. We did give away our free t-shirt last month, and we do have a few new reviewers to thank, including Greenfire7047, Jesse Hum, and Jmanda90. We always appreciate you going on to iTunes, leaving us ratings and reviews, and also reaching out to us on social media, such as Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at Just a Story Pod. You can also find our website at justastorypod.com, and that's where all of our sources live on in perpetuity. And also there's artwork and some visual accompaniments for some of the episodes we've done, some galleries. People call that artwork. No, I mean like the newspaper clippings and the galleries. That's a a visual accompaniment. Sure, sure. It's like a fine piano player playing behind me as I sing Delta Dawn, and no one wants to hear it. Fantasies again? Yeah, maybe. Or I have a lunchtime routine. I'll never tell. On the website, you can also find a link to our merchandise store where you can get t-shirts, totes, all kinds of other fun stuff with some of Samantha's designs. Samantha? Yeah. Yeah, I like those extra syllables there. It's kind of nice. 
And you can also find links to our Patreon page, which is a great way to help support the show monetarily. Of course, we always appreciate any sort of support whatsoever. Moral, a good bra, whatever. I will take your word for that. Sport's nice. Are we sponsored by Third Love now? Oh my god, I wish. If they'd send me merch, we so would be. And we do want to thank our new patron, Jackie Goots. Thanks for coming on board. And there's one other way you can reach out to us. And that is by dialing us at the Urban Legend Hotline. And for the record, that number is 512-222-3375. And when you call, you can leave us a voicemail detailing a local urban legend, a funny joke that you've heard, repeated often, your favorite scary story, the coordinates to where you've buried the treasure, whatever. That would be cool. Right? Another way to help support the show is <laughs> where your great-grandfather's buried gold treasure is. Or, you know, we can start a fun little geocaching game. But now, now, Sam, we do need to get back to Dire Straits. Gotta get those microwave ovens. This is like the original generation version of, like, when rappers, like, list their shit. And it's, it's Mark like, home goods. Now, before we get into the story... I think important caveat, we're not going to be bitching about Trump this entire episode, I promise. Yeah, no, we're not. Like, okay. So, for the purposes of this episode, we will be discussing our Cheeto in Chief, Cheeto in Charge. That's his new show. Get it in now. (laughs) I am. Up top. We're going to talk about him during the legend. It's like, let's pretend this is the 1990s, early 2000s. Cool. And we're hearing the story because that's kind of when this story came out. So we're just kind of, like, kind of annoyed with his very public displays of vileness in the New York tabloids, and he hasn't yet launched Trump stakes or Trump have. the game. I okay, think he may have. it's about the time period I'm talking about. Okay, so we're enthusiastically playing Trump the game while like rolling our eyes that he's getting a divorce and he notified his soon-to-be ex-wife yeah, using the tabloids. Excited about the new show, The Apprentice. Cool. Okay. But, you know, all in that kind of 10, 15-year span. The story we kind of heard at the top really first appeared in Forbes. Really? Like, the Forbes. That's like a quasi-legitimate source. Sure. No, I mean, it definitely is. And it was in February of 1996, saying this may well be the public relations gesture of the year. During the 1995 Christmas holidays, Donald Trump and Marla Maples find themselves marooned in their stretch limo with a flat tire on a busy stretch of New Jersey Highway. Mm. Finally, a passing motorist spots the limo in distress and offers to help the chauffeur change the tire. The driver says, sure. Before the retired limo rolls off, the darkened windows roll down and an effusive Trump asks what he and his wife can do to repay the favor. I will just send my wife a big bouquet of flowers. Now, of course, two weeks later... He gets that bouquet of flowers with a card that says, We paid off your home mortgage, Marla and Donald. Okay, so Marla is wife number two. And it says, The Trump's flackery won't reveal the lucky chap's name, but informer hears Trump forked over more than $100,000 for the gesture. Hey, is it too soon to like say whether or not I believe it? I kind of believe you would have done it. I know that sounds really weird. But he is always extremely affected by, like, one personal story. Well, I mean, the story changes. Oh. So this gives you a little more info, like you were saying. You know, sometimes he's married to Ivana. He's driving in Michigan. That's wife number one. Sometimes he's driving in Jersey or Canada. 
And here's Casino Niagara. Now, in 1997, whenever his assistant was asked if it was true, he said, well, we've heard the story, but no, it isn't true. You know who does believe this is true? Donald Trump. <laughs> of course. During a January 2005 episode of The Apprentice, when he was asked about if it was true or not, he said, oh yeah, that's true. Sounds great. So that part of it to me is very realistic. Mm-hmm. He thinks it's true. I have no problem believing that he believes it's true. Like I said, very easily influenced. <laughs> but the thing is, the story is much much older than even Donald Trump not older than Donald Trump <laughs> but older than the kind of pop persona of mm. Donald Trump there are many many versions of this story dating back to the 1950s with Perry Como being one of the first people in this story who is Perry Como he's like a crooner oh I thought that sounded very familiar there are versions with Henry Ford recorded uh, in, lies in, yeah, lies yeah lies he was a generous He was like, uh, no, he asked, like, what's your last name? All right, you sound white. Let's do this. <laughs> I'm going to pay off your mortgage. It's like, oh, wait, sounds kind of Jewish. <laughs> yeah, don't touch my tire. Really? Henry Ford had car trouble? I'm sure he was really nice to his mechanic. There's a version with Nat King Cole, or most often Nat King Cole's wife. Hmm. And it's kind of a little different twist on it because it's a older african-american woman standing on the side of an alabama highway oh, so it's like the the southern version during a rainstorm like in the 1960s and you know you kind of get a little more good samaritan nature to it because someone stops you know like a white guy stops to help this older black lady in the middle of the rural alabama highway but you can see versions of this story all over books, the internet, the Nat King Calls Wife story is in a chicken soup book. Mm. But it's basically like fill in time appropriate millionaire. Mogul of sorts. Yes. And sometimes it's Bill Gates. Sometimes in England it is David Beckham. Sometimes it can be like Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes. One informant even had a version from the 1960s with Louis Armstrong. And he sends him a color TV. And sometimes it can be things like microwave ovens. <laughs> yeah, but it's like stuff like that. Like just some kind of... Convenience, nice gesture, yeah. expensive, big ticket item, whatever. But basically any millionaire in the public eye. Somebody who's famous for having money, kind of. Yeah, and especially having some eccentricity to it too so this is a, a story about how crazy rich people are with their money and how we can all benefit from it to be cynical i think there's a little more to it than it's that. a billionaires are people too story so this is like when people have money there's just no telling what they'll do with it maybe they'll even give you some <gasps> we should all hope billionaires have lots of money so We've talked about the way some eccentric billionaires have uh, disposed of their fortunes before. We mentioned one fellow, a Canadian, in our Baby Train episode when he introduced the Great Stork Derby. Which was not a stork race, unfortunately. Though I would watch that. Definitely. It was a competition to see how many children could be produced by a family in a given number of years. And whoever had the most children won. And a few people won. 
And there are lots of fun, historical, eccentric millionaire tales and the crazy things they do with their money. So let's avoid kings and queens and royalty. Okay. For these purposes. So these, we're just going to stick with like landed gentry, etc. Yes. Okay. And the equivalent in America, <laughs> the tycoons. So one guy, John Mad Jack Mitten, was born in 1796 and he was an heir to a fortune that brought him an annual income equivalent to 750,000 pounds in today's money a year. I have a feeling that he's going to do away with that pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. He was expelled from one school for fighting one of the masters. One of, like the headmaster? Like the one of the teachers, Adults? Yeah. Okay. And his next school for putting a horse in his tutor's bedroom. <laughs> I like his style. Now, he did pay his way into Cambridge, where... He shipped in 2,000 bottles of port. Just to look at. Never touch the stuff. Never. Never. Teetotaler. Now, he, uh, let's say, did not graduate. Okay. Fun euphemism. But he did get himself elected an MP. Parliament? Yeah. Oh. He offered voters 10 pounds (laughs) to vote for him. And he spent the equivalent of 750,000 pounds to enter Parliament. Oh, so he could... Influence the world and make it a better place. Well, he went to the first meeting and he spent about 30 minutes there and then he just kind of got bored and left. Hmm. I can't imagine. Now, he would go fox hunting and whenever he got uncomfortable or too hot or anything like that, he would you know, he'd just strip his clothes off and continue hunting. Naked? Oh, yeah. Naked on a horse. It doesn't seem like a good idea. No. And with foxes around and, and hunting dogs, seems like... An nips, accident. nips ensue like madness. Asking. Hey, no one's ever asking for it, okay? Oh. Maybe this guy was. Yeah, I think he was. Now, he had almost 2,000 dogs that he kept. And his favorite ones, he would feed steak and champagne to. Oh, so they lived for like six minutes. Oh, no. I'm sure they lived a nice, happy life. And he would let Baronet, his favorite horse, wander inside the house. Oh, my God. Jack. <laughs> and the horse also would lie in front of the fire with him. Now, one day, I'm sure after a little too much port, he rode a bear into his drawing room. A bear, you say? Like a bear. Like a, a mammal. That I'm pretty sure. Okay. And this time, he did decide to wear his hunting clothes. <laughs> good. Good. Good job, you. Now, the bear, amazingly, did carry him quietly for a time until he decided to stick his spurs into it. Where it then bit his leg before going on to attack one of his servants. Did the servant make it? Lost to history. So. Okay. I think so. How did they get the bear under control? A little port. I don't know. Honey. <laughs> it was Winnie with a temper. Now, during a stay in Calais, Mitten suffered an attack of hiccups, and he decided he was going to cure this by frightening himself. Okay. This is not the bear story. Okay. So he set his clothes on fire. Mitten? After a servant had beaten out the flames, Mitten proudly proclaimed, The hiccup is gone by God. Oh. And reeled off to bed naked. (laughs) This might surprise you, but he died in his 30s in debtor's prison. Raise your hand if you're surprised. Another one would be James Jameson. Like Jameson Whiskey? Yeah, he was the heir to the Irish whiskey empire. He also considered himself quite an explorer. 
There was one 1887 incident that was recorded by famed adventurer Henry Stanley. Now, he heard this tale from a military sergeant about Jameson's escapades in Rabi Kuba, where he met Arab slave traders, and he purchased a young girl for ten handkerchiefs. They then took her to a cannibal village and gave the young girl to a tribe and watched them stab the girl to death, dismember, cook, and eat her. Bullshit. That's what he said. That's what Stanley said when he heard it, because he heard it secondhand. I think he probably said, boulder dash. Probably. So he decided to investigate and spoke to his translator, who confirmed the story, and also looked into Jameson's diaries and found it all recorded as told, and also sketches that he had turned into watercolors about the incident. No. I refuse. <laughs> okay, you can refuse. I mean, you know, it's kind of contemporarily confirmed. I mean, we don't even need a time machine to really, really prove it. But that the translator said it gives a little more weight to me. There was another fellow who had a little more money than sense, or maybe a lot of sense and no heart. We can't be sure. <laughs> and he was a wealthy lumber tycoon named Wellington Burt. And he died, leaving between 40 and 90 million, which seems a big a big range, but whatever. And in his final years, he lived alone in a mansion with his servants. And he was estranged from friends and family. And he was nicknamed the Lone Pine of Michigan. It's a great nickname. Because poetry. Of course. I'm sure some yellow journalism. <laughs> uh-huh. And he officially died of senility at the age of 87. At his death, everyone expected to get a nice little piece of the Lone Pine's forest of money forest of money i'm going with it because poetry poetry but that was not the case oh really what did he do with it donate to poor orphans and children no well i was trying to give him some credit he left his immediate offspring a relatively small sum just like an annual allowance of about a thousand dollars a year and this was the same amount that he left his cook housekeeper and coachman I think he was trying to tell him something. One son, who he was particularly fond of, received $30,000. Oh, that's like, you could live on that. Annually. Yeah, you could live on that. That's good. And one unfavored daughter got nothing. <gasps> what did she do? She probably tried to start a forest fire. Or didn't prevent one. He's the lone pine at Smoky Bear. He left instructions that his estate be preserved as, quote, a golden Egg. He made them make eggs. No, he just called his estate a golden egg. Like a nest egg. Yes. And he said it would remain in its nest for 21 years after the death of his last surviving grandchild. Oh, wow. Now, the last of his grandchildren, alive when he died, was Marion Lancel. And she passed away in November of 1989. Money time! And the judge who reviewed the estate and the will... At this time, and the applications which had been funneled in. I'd be sending one in. I'm like, he's my great, 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 great grandpa. We're kind of kin. That's the Southern version. He looked over all of the prospective egg recipients, and guess what? He made a dozen eggs. Aww. He gave it to about 12 people, and the total of the estate at this time was estimated to be around $100 million. So they did pretty well. Nice. That tiny acorn, Jacob. Egg? Pine cone. There you go. Grew into a mighty forest of 
greenbacks? Money. <laughs> pines. Pines. They were not lonely pines. It's a new generation. I bet they weren't lonely after they got that money. Exactly. Happy ending, right? So there's also the story of Luis Carlo de Norona Cabral de Camara. It's a hell of a name. Mm-hmm. Now he boasted of his noble Portuguese lineage, but he was not a happy man. He was an illegitimate son of an aristocratic Portuguese mother. Who would Freud say? This made him very uncomfortable. He lived a rough life, did a little drinking, a little drugging, a couple of motorcycles in the mix. You know, rebel without a cause, accoutrement. Of course. He died in 2007. He had no family or friends, but he wrote up a will leaving his entire estate to 70 random people. I thought it was some kind of cruel joke, a 70-year-old woman called Helena told Portugal's sole newspaper. I'd never heard of the man. I rang the lawyer, and he said that the man just picked names out of a phone book. Each of these people received thousands of euros. If anyone would like to include us in their will. Sure. But don't die. Don't die. No. If your, like, great-grandmother wants to include us in her will. Are you trying to kill people's great-grandmothers? I'm just saying. But now this idea of an eccentric millionaires and them just kind of giving their money away. Obviously, you can see lots of real-life stories. But, man, it is really part of pop culture. Absolutely. And it has been for a hot minute at least. And I mean, you can see this idea of like the millionaire sharing the wealth, like kind of come to this culminating moment when you see things like The Apprentice happen, when you have this this wealthy guy who's going to give people the American dream and a job and money and fame and an appointment to the... Sorry, we're not getting political. For the rest of this episode, we shall refer to Donald Trump as he who shall not be named. And we will leave this idea now and go back in time with Marty McFly, Doc Brown, and all the rest of the things that are pure and joyful. You mean the 80s? I mean further. Yeah, we can go further back. But I mean, when I think of the eccentric millionaire, there is like stuff like the movie Brewster's Millions. Okay, remind me of what Brewster's Millions is. Yeah, so it's an 80s movie. Okay, I'm picturing it now. Yeah, I see so it. I see it. Richard Pryor. Okay. John okay. Candy. Got it. He is set to inherit a millionaire-centric uncle's millions of dollars. But okay. in order to do this, he must spend a set amount of money without making any money and without having any possessions left, and he can't just like throw it in the like fire or anything. And it's a fun movie. It's just kind Does of it have classic. to be like good, or is it no. just like... No, it doesn't. Why? Right? I always thought that was interesting. And he actually is even limited on the amount he could spend on charity. What? So you can't just go like, be like, here's $10 million. St. Jude's. Yeah. No. He uh, 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 can like, like, I think 5% to it. Really, these ideas of this kind of eccentric money go further back. I mean, you've got Oscar Wilde kind mm-hmm. of having a similar story in A Model Millionaire. Um, Jules Verne has a story. The Will of an Eccentric, which is basically, it's a mad, 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 mad world, or rat race. Oh my god, really? That's a Jules Verne construction? Yeah. I assume it was more intricate. I imagine there was like some kind of illustration, and there were rules, and there There were... Okay. There was. It was based on a board game, and he said it in the United States, and he used a like newly released 
United States travel guide to kind of describe all the places they had to go and hit in order to get the money. Oh my God, that's adorable. I want to write like a kid's book based on that. (laughs) Okay, so trading places, right? There's an elaborate scheme forward by some, some dastardly Wall Street traders to get rid of this like new kind of... I want to say ingenue, but I know that's not the correct use of the word. And they don't like him and he's too successful. And so they're going to make him trade places with a con man. Yeah, like a Eddie Murphy, a smooth talking con man. And they're pulling this big shenanigan hoax. But at the end, the two team up, Ackroyd and Eddie Murphy team up. And they are going to go after these Wall Street types. And they end up pulling some kind of hijinks together that makes them end up completely broke and they get a bunch of money because it's some kind of stock thing that happens. I don't know. Jamie Lee Curtis is in it. They talk about angel dust. I was confused about angel dust forever. (laughs) Um, There are angels in this movie? Yes. There were no angels. Then you can go back to this formed aristocrat or reformed financier. Rich guy. (laughs) Rich guy. When you look at A Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens. Yeah, Scrooge. Right? Hey, that became an 80s movie, too. It did, with Bill Murray. Love that movie. I love that movie. That's an underrated Christmas movie. Scrooge, which is based on Dickens' tale. And Brewster's Millions, actually, is based on an old novel. Really? So the novel was published in 1902 by George Barr McCutcheson. And so it revolves around Montgomery Brewster, a young man who inherits $1 million from his rich grandfather. Now, shortly after, another rich relative, an uncle, who hated Brewster's grandfather, also dies. And the uncle will leave Brewster $7 million, but only under the condition that he keeps none of his grandfather's money. (laughs) Okay, bitterness. And again, he has to spend all the money in, this time one year, with no assets, no property. And if he meets the terms... He will gain the full $7 million. If he fails, he remains penniless. That's cold. Yeah, it really is. And you know, it's an interesting story because of like you were talking about like no charity, nothing nice can be done for it. He just has to blow it. Well, and this one, like the, the absolute motivation is bitterness. Like he wants that money gone. Like he's got to almost flame it off. Yeah. But you know, just like in older stories of your kind of eccentric millionaires and Europe, other areas, you've got you know some kind of royalty or duke or something like that. Mm. And in this one, you've got the equivalent, the American equivalent, the like tycoon, mm-hmm. the railroad magnate, the bank president. And you know, in the story, Monty realizes that the best way to blow some money is to enter Manhattan's high society. Balls, dinner parties. He's like, I was Gatsby before Gatsby was cool. Right, he's like, I can blow some money and go crazy. He doesn't go crazy, though. But the story takes like a really interesting twist because he goes and tours the old world on a big pleasure yacht, right? Tours Europe and Africa. And at each stop, he's hailed as a conquering emperor. Mm. In the Riviera, he presides over a parade and a carnival in Milan. When the crowds gather around him in awe, Monty explains to a friend, they take us for American dukes and princesses. Well, weren't they? They were. They were the new American dukes and princesses. And they were you know, just kind of touting that American imperialism that was so prevalent at the time. Imperialism? That's what America was going for. Ugh. 
Yuck. Okay, but cool. <laughs> but I mean, the crazy thing about it is how much it just endorses Monty Brewster's campaign to blow some cash <laughs> to get rid of it. He is your into the story. He's your main character. Mm-hmm. You are supposed to see him as the good guy. Right. And like there are limits on how much you can donate to charity. There are limits. So I buy that he like that somebody would be like, as long as you get rid of that other nasty money. I can see that mean old man thinking yeah, that. You've got your main character. Like what's his turn? He has to realize that other people need the money. No. No. Nope. He no. Just, no. He just learns how to spend money. Really? There's no moment of retribution where he sees like a poor child in the gutter and like goes to help them and decides that he's going to like fund a school or something. There's a subplot about the woman he's in love with mm-hmm. and the money. It's, it's, but it's not the main point of the story. The point is like, look what all this gets you. Exactly. Don't you wish you had to blow a million dollars? And there's still at this time, just that great national myth, the American dream. One could even say any man might with hard work, little good luck, Stumble into loads of cash. And this is before it was kind of a, a trope, before it was something we kind of made fun of. Mm-hmm. Before we got cynical about it. Exactly. So another 80s movie with way deeper roots is Annie. You know, like, tomorrow, tomorrow. That one? Yes, I've seen it. <laughs> I haven't. What? Uh, yeah. What? No, I was never interested. You haven't seen it. It never grabbed my attention. I was like, Grease is the word. Grease is the word. And it's, I'm it's s- like, good. I want I want teenagers and like love stories and I just didn't see that happening with that girl and her fro. That little red fro. But anyway. <laughs> so we had that moment with Annie, but I know using my secret Dakota ring. Ovaltine? That I should drink Ovaltine and that little orphan Annie is far older. Than 1982. Right. Little Orphan Annie is originally a comic and became a radio show, like you've seen a Christmas story. Mm-hmm. And then several movies, musicals. It first began running in papers in 1924 and was written and illustrated by a man named Harold Gray. Okay. Now, the comic is not very much like the movie and musical. Now, you do have... The Little Orphan Annie. That seems have, key. Yeah, you have Daddy Warbucks. Also key. You know, the guy that takes her in. But he doesn't like take her in and she becomes his ward forever and she lives in a life of wealth and money. But why not? Um, because that would ruin the point that Harold Gray was trying to get across. What was his point? Oh, we'll get there. Okay. Daddy Warbucks is in it and sometimes he takes her in. But she's frequently kicked out by Miss Warbucks. <laughs> who's constantly belittling and abusing her. It's a hard knock life. Still, still it is. And usually the story is centered around Annie, her beloved dog Sandy, usually out on their own, on the streets in the world. The mean streets. It's true. She kind of moves through America, coming across many of the problems of America this time. There are hard work and self-reliance and grit. Grit. That seems key. She can truly find the key to happiness. I mean, like, this is just a small step away from work will set you free, and I'm not liking where it's going. <laughs> well, he reported in 1952 that he got the idea when he came across this little ragamuffin. Cute. Like the wording. While he was wandering the streets of Chicago looking for cartooning ideas. 
I talked to this little kid and liked her right away. She had common sense. Knew how to take care of herself. She had to. Her name was Annie. Because that's what we all want in children. Grit and common sense. Exactly. So, you know, during the Great Depression, when this was its biggest hit as a comic, the frames are crowded with filled word balloons featuring Annie's lectures on self-reliance and helping those in need and always showing her grit. At least she was charitable. Well, Gray used the comic to kind of discuss his conservative ideas of private enterprise, small government, and the need for law and order, with Daddy Warbucks in the background as an oracle reinforcing his ward's beliefs. Gray hated FDR. I'm just guessing it's FDR. I'm going to guess it's FDR. I'm raising my hand right now and guessing it's FDR. I mean, first of all, FDR is the Antichrist. We all know that. Yes. For full details, please see our Antichrist episode. He was like, this mother bleeper with this pinky ring and it's high-minded ideas and it's socialism. Exactly. In 1935, he had a plot where political racketeers threatened to destroy one of Daddy Warbuck's factories. So there was such outrage at these kind of stories that people started to take notice and it was banned from (laughs) many papers. (laughs) Oh, flexing that good censorship muscle. In one paper where it would have gone, it said deleted for violation of reader trust. That's editorializing a bit. Well, so was Gray. So it's a world in which capitalists like Daddy Warbucks is the good guy mm-hmm. laid low by Wall Street sharks before fighting his way back. So one historian said that by 1932, the villains in the strip are increasingly identified with the political left. Snide, bohemian intellectuals who mock traditional values, upper crust class traitors who give money to communist, vicious bureaucrats who hamper big business, corrupt labor union leaders who sabotage industry, Demagogic politicians who stir up class envy in order to win elections and busybody social workers who won't let a poor orphan girl work for a living because of their silly child labor laws. (sighs) Nothing new under the sun. Right? You know, the last time I saw my dad, and I'm not making this up, you want to know what he was griping about? Child labor laws? Yes. No? I swear. He was like, you know, we worked when we were kids and it was good for us. Nobody works and kids just expect everything handed to him. And I was like, wow. I literally said, wow, dad. Hadn't heard that one in a while. One of our favorite lines, the New Republic described Annie as Hooverism in the funnies. (laughs) And now during Gray's fight against FDR and the New Deal, he even killed Daddy Warbucks off. Believing that Warbucks could not coexist in a world with FDR. But following Roosevelt's death, Gray resurrected Warbucks, who was only playing dead to thwart his liberal enemies. And once again, the billionaire began expounding the joys of capitalism. But, I mean, one of the reasons it was so popular was it was the Great Depression. People Mm -hmm. were in hard times. And they liked that message of grit, getting anyone through anything and getting the job done. It was our version of stiff upper lip. Yeah. And people tend to look to entertainment to kind of reinforce their pre-existing notions of what will preserve or strengthen them when times are challenging. You know, we find outlets that kind of reflect our needs being fulfilled back at us. And we kind of 
you know, complete the circle. We kind of find our our way out by watching other people do what we were planning on doing anyway and succeed. Or doing what we could do. Right. If we just had the opportunity. Right. And so this idea of that kind of grit and getting your way through things and purported Emersonian idea that's not of self-reliance. <laughs> and this is like American capitalist ideology. Mm-hmm. The values and ideas that we kind of grow up with and are very much reflected back on us by pop culture, you know, mm-hmm. especially in movies. Movies, you say. I do. And so Robin Wood wrote this kind of seminal film study paper, Ideology, Genre, and the Auteur, kind of talking about this. Wood kind of outlines these different ideologies that really reflect these ideas back. And some of them really tie into these stories really well. He includes things like success and wealth, something that Hollywood is deeply ashamed of, but they also play on its allure. They can't openly extol it. Like having wealth. Yeah, they can't have hundreds and hundreds of movies where that's what it's about. And and a lot of times those characters are very flawed. You you can think of like Citizen Kane. Ah, yes. And so one interesting one I thought that Wood had was the Rosebud Syndrome. That money isn't everything. Money corrupts. The poor are happier. (laughs) The more oppressed you are, the happier you are. I feel like there was a lot of... um fist shaking and saying like easy for you to say and of course the idea that america is the land where everyone actually is slash can be happy all problems are solvable within our existing system Hmm. just enough grit everyone gets a fair shake and you know this kind of assumption gives us that persistent hollywood idea of the happy ending oh yes all everything's just all tied up of course it is lasting happiness We've resolved all the problems, and now we will go fall into the system where we will be high-achieving, smiling members of society forevermore. Exactly. I've seen the hymnal. So Hollywood has long been packaging and selling the American dream in many, many, many features. And in like so many different ways is it depicted. Right, and there's basically like this checklist that you could put together. Hard work wins. Little guy makes good. All Always. works out for him. In the last turn of the movie. Character is a greater influence than birthright. And success is made by the individual. So you can see examples in the following American films. So, hard work wins. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Little guy goes to the big old city. Right. It was released in 1939, starring Jimmy Stewart. It was a Frank Capra joint. <laughs> Are they joints? That was. Uh, (laughs) It's like the movie everyone watches in civics class. But he goes to Washington, you know, champions his cause, exposes the nasty underbelly of Washington politics and makes his point known to the world. He fights the law and he wins. He is the law. Wait, what? And then you have the second article on our checklist. The little guy makes good. If we're going to talk little guys, we're going to talk giant. Because that's ironic. Of course. But you got James Dean, who, yeah, he's the little guy and gets a little plot of land. He's able to find oil. Oh, it's so much more than that because he's on the land of wealthy Rock Hudson and Liz Taylor. Oh, of course. Of course. His wife dies. And as a compensation, they give him this little tract of land. And eventually, 
he strikes oil on his land. And he, you know, is now wealthier than they are. And it's a whole thing. But he was, like, oppressed. And then he, you know, used what he had and became greater than those that would hold him down. I watched it with my dad. How was it? It's two VHSs long. Ah, was that scene where James Dean runs in all covered in oil awkward for you? Like with your dad? <laughs> no. Okay. It wasn't. I think everyone could pretty much readily accept that James Dean's a fox. He is a fox. <laughs> hey, and then birthright is not everything. Character matters more because we don't do that whole monarchy thing here. So we can look to the 1977 classic directed by George Lucas, Howard the Duck. Just kidding. (laughs) Star Wars. Of course, of course, definitely. Like Luke learns that he is the son of his greatest enemy and does not allow this to change the inner workings of his mind, nor the caliber of his character and goes on fighting for good because it's just the right thing to do. And hero's journey, etc. Yeah, whatever. And then you have the fourth item. Success is made by the individual. And this comes through in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which was a John Ford picture starring guests. Just guess, just guess. Who does John Ford pick? John Wayne. John Wayne. You're right. And? And because it's America? Because it's America. Who else has to be there? I don't know. Jimmy Stewart. Of course. <laughs> That's who I think of when I think cowboy. Well, he's not. He's a senator. So basically, he returns to town for John Wayne's funeral after he's gone off to Washington and become a big shot. And it's learned that though he was initially propelled to political heights by the belief that he'd shot the town bad guy. Liberty Valance. Yeah. It was actually John Wayne who did it. (gasps) But he had gone on to be a good man and fulfill everyone's dreams. And like the legend didn't matter because he'd made his own success. Well, as American as Apple Pie and Cowboys. You're so right. But you do see these ideas really play out a lot in genre films. I mean, almost everything we've talked about is like a genre film. Like it's like Westerns, you get self-reliance. Justice. Gangster movies. Well, it's kind of entrepreneurial spirit, isn't it? Well, we kind of talked about that in the Outlaws episode. You know, that was like the odd American hero. Mm-hmm, the anti-hero. But we still love them. You get that perfect happy ending and all those wonderful musicals. Right. And you even get this like micro genre of stars being made, you know, like the, the idea that any girl could come into Hollywood and just become a star overnight, which worked out for like seven people. All you need is bus ticket and pretty face. <laughs> Looking at you, Elizabeth. Looking at you. <laughs> and then you get like World War II films where you definitely get this effort to preserve and continue the American dream and you get a healthy dose of patriotism mixed in along with it. Very much on purpose. Oh, yes. Very much sponsored by the government. Right. Because propaganda can be fun. Fun, I tells you. It can be fun. Please, like, seriously, go watch Five Came Back. So the next time we see the government kind of in this weird lockstep with popular entertainment in a meaningful way. It's not the 70s. <laughs> kind of starts in the 80s. Or does it? Maybe its history is longer and its roots are deeper than we ever imagined. So let's take a moment to talk about Ronald Wilson Reagan. I mean, you literally have a Hollywood star in office. He is being forged in the furnace of conservative Cold War era Hollywood. He is a staunch anti-communist and he kind of embodies this 
1950s commercial patriotism. And I mean, it continues when he starts doing like General Electric Theater, which is the ultimate, you know, everything sponsored by household goods. And he's like, you've got to get your microwave oven. You've got to get your color TV. Got to get your refrigerators. No checks, though. No checks. Only Nancy. But, you know, he's piped into every American's home looking super domestic and wholesome and hardcore American. Now, he literally took part in forming this 1940s World War II era Americanism when he did voiceover work for propaganda films that were produced during World War II. He was even in some training videos. He had poor eyesight and couldn't be put into active duty, so this was his contribution to the cause. Now, he really began his political career as a Democrat. So what? Yeah, but we don't have to talk about that. It's okay. We won't tell anybody, Ronnie. But then he switched parties because, like all red-blooded Americans, he liked Ike. He was a super patriot, an anti-communist. Of course he's going to go with the general. A hero. You're right. He really was. He really was. He wrote a letter accepting full responsibility if D-Day failed before they took off. It was amazing. You should read it. And he kind of came into the national consciousness when he gave the speech in support of Barry Goldwater, who was running against LBJ, and really made an impression on the Republican Party at large. He included lines like, We are at war with the most dangerous enemy ever faced by mankind in his long climb from the swamp to the stars. And it's been said, if we lose the war, and in so doing, lose this way of freedom of ours, history will record it as the greatest astonishment that those who had the most to lose did the least to prevent it from happening. The Democratic Party of Jefferson, Jackson, and Cleveland is going down the road under banners of Marx and Lenin and Stalin. So then he became the California governor. And he announced his 1980 candidacy in the fall of 1979. I believe this nation hungers for spiritual revival. Hungers to once again see honor placed above political expediency. To see government once again protect our liberties. Not the distributor of gifts and privilege. Government should uphold and not undermine those institutions which are custodians of the very values upon which civilization is founded, religion, education, and above all, family. Government cannot be clergyman, teacher, and parent. It is our servant. It is beholden to us. And I mean, you really do see that change in kind of political rhetoric with LBJ and Barry Goldwater's campaign. You have the classic... Daisy commercial, mm-hmm. which, if you've not seen it, is amazing. It was by LBJ's campaign, showing, basically showing a little girl blown up by an atomic bomb. But not. Yes. It was implied. It was very heavily implied. It happened off panel. It literally aired once on TV. <laughs> but it went down in history. History, because it really changed things. It, it changed the landscape of political discourse in a way that we're still really not back. From. But it used very Hollywood-style storytelling mm-hmm. in this commercial. And then, of course, you see Reagan really picking up on some of those ideas. The 40th president of the United States, Ronald Reagan, sought to alter this direction by bringing the United States back to conservative renaissance. He accomplished this in part by using his history in and knowledge of Hollywood. Films and television were used by President Reagan to paint the image he had of a better America. 
a return to classical conservative family values, a strong effective military, and strong opposition and denunciation of communism, all became synonymous with the 1980s and with Ronald Reagan. He left office as one of the most popular and successful presidents in the history of the country and cast a shadow upon the American political scene that is still seen today. And that is according to Gable Hackett, who wrote That 80s Show, the politics, film, and television of the Reagan years. So Ronald Reagan really embraced the idea that movies influenced the popular imagination. And it wasn't necessarily that he was commissioning propaganda films. It's just that he watched films and recognized the themes. The themes. And drew out the ones he wanted to talk about. And mirrored these themes back to the American people and applied them to the policies he wanted to lay out. So in one way, he was like talking on a level that everyone could understand. In another way, he was co-opting ideas that were free-floating in the American consciousness already and branding himself with them. I mean, I think one of the most interesting things that happens at this time period is this creation of this like false 1950s narrative. Mm-hmm. Happy Days comes out around this time. All in the family. And you see him use things like Star Wars to name his missile defense program. Right. After he brands Russia the evil oh, empire. Darth Vader's over there. Totally. I mean, it's kind of believable. If I were Darth Vader, I would hang out in Russia. So in 1986, in his State of the Union address, he basically said, like, there's never been a more exciting time to be alive. Look at all the technological innovations we're making. Where we're going, we don't need roads. Nice. He just quoted back to the future in the State of the Union address. Like, I mean, that had to floor people. So there is, of course, like a, a more sinister side to this. I guess um, some people have pointed out that because we know that Reagan eventually had Alzheimer's, like maybe there's some questions. For example, in a psychobiographical study, Ronald Reagan, the movie, Michael Rogan traces Reagan's vision of missile defense back to 1940 Warner Brothers movie, Murder in the Air. In this film, Reagan plays a Secret Service agent who prevents a foreign spy from stealing the plans for a powerful new defensive weapon. By being able to stop and destroy any attacking vehicle or missile, this weapon will, according to one of the film's characters, make America invincible in war and therefore be the greatest force for peace ever invented. Rogan's central thesis is that the future president was made in the 1940s Hollywood. It's not only that Reagan extensively referred to movies in his later speeches, quoting, for example, Clint Eastwood's famous line, Go ahead, make my day, from Dirty Harry, in Congress with reference to his promised veto to tax increases, or stating in July 1985, after American hostages held in Lebanon had been released, Boy, I saw Rambo last night, and now I know what to do next time this happens. More worryingly, according to Rogan, the president's identity and his conception of reality had been shaped by Hollywood films to such an extent that he was unable to step outside of the fictions that he'd once inhabited. There's just all these reflections and this like going back and forth where he's reflecting some of the pop culture, but pop culture is very much reflecting his ideas too. You know, it's when you get the classic Reaganomics, those huge recessions in the 70s, the oil shortages, and with Reagan's policies, whether you like it or not, he was able to kind of help draw 
the country back into a more solvent state. I mean, you definitely see this depicted in 80s movies. I mean, you can think of like Wall Street. Oh my God. Wall Street is so interesting. It is such a time capsule and it was, it's becomes kind of the antithesis of what it was meant to be. So we all know the famous line, the famous Gordon Gecko line, greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Michael Douglas starred in this movie, directed by Oliver Stone, and it was intended to be a satirical look at how the rich in America kept getting richer. But somehow, something got lost in translation, and it became kind of like this rallying point for Reagan and his constituents. Greed or the free market system is good and making more and gathering more is going to make you survive and make you be better. Greed is strength, in other words. And even though it was meant to be satirical, no one took it that way. I mean, of course people did, but it's very much used as like a rallying cry. Well, there's another line in the movie when Greco says, I create nothing I own. When I first read the line, I was like, I create nothing I own. It's like, okay, cool, me either. But then I was like, no, 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 no. That punctuation. Don't forget the comma. It's a period. Oh, it's a period. It's a period. It means business. Seriously? <laughs> I create nothing I own, he says. And in that moment, he's like the consummate consumer. And it's given him power and reach and influence and everything your little heart could ever want consuming has made him powerful. And so you see this real shift in the kind of fantasies and ideas of, I mean, we can call the American dream, but it really has a very specific window here. It's how you're going to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but your grit, your determination, and what you have to do to have that like upward mobility. So Pauline Kael posits in the movies of the 20s and 30s it was common for heroines and heroes to be ashamed of their poverty and to feel a vast social gap between the secure rich but in the years after the second world war as people moved up in society movie fantasies of marrying the rich lost its romantic appeal has this fantasy been returning in 80s movies such as flash dance or an officer and a gentleman or valley girl or pretty in pink whatever the reason Class conscientiousness has been making a comeback, but not in any kind of realistic or political context. What we're getting here is strictly the fantasy theme of love bridging the gap. So there were a ton, a plethora, a smorgasbord of upward mobility fantasies in the 80s. We've already mentioned a bunch of them. Right. All the right moves, you know, like the, the Rust Belt kid who gets out because of all his chutzpah and football talent. Of course. And he wants to be not a steel mill worker, but an engineer. Like just a marginal aspiration. <laughs> and then Risky Business, where he does Risky It's all Tom Cruise. Lots of Tom Cruise happening here, too. It's the Church of Scientology. Yeah. <laughs> and Breakfast Club, Down and Out in Beverly Hills. Oh, I guess Pretty Woman counts. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many variations, like King Ralph. King Ralph definitely and counts. John Goodman finds out that he's a royalty. So good. But you get this idea that escaping from industrial or manual labor and ascent into the white collar world is like absolutely necessary for true conformity and happiness in the 1980s. And this is nowhere typified to a greater extent, like more blatantly, I guess, than in an officer and a gentleman where, you know, this the leading lady 
is working in an industrial setting and handsome, so handsome, Richard Gere comes in. Gerbil. Sorry, my mind's just running in circles. <laughs> like on a hamster wheel? Yeah, exactly. You got it. You got what I was doing there. But anyway, Richard Gere comes in in his officer uniform and picks her up and carries her off to a better life. And literally everyone stops working to applaud. Yeah. You yeah. go, girl. Yay. I mean, say the same thing in Pretty Woman. He just shows up. Well, no one applauds. Yeah, but what's funny about that is the original ending. Yeah, that was a dark ending. He just kind of leaves her. She dies of like a drug overdose or something. It's terrible. It's much darker. Another one where she's like getting out of poverty in an industrial town is Flashdance. But we're made to feel that like getting out of these working class towns is is good it's morally good it's like if you do the right thing and you find the right person everything's gonna work out you won't have to do this anymore it really denigrates the idea of work (laughs) i feel like i'm maybe overstating it but then there's this scene where charlie sheen tells his father in wall street there's no nobility in poverty anymore (laughs) so maybe i'm not reading too much in it's a little on the nose there a little a little on the nose but we do get these like wild escapist fantasies that just lead capitalism at this moment. Right. I mean, one of my favorite 80s movies is Ferris Bueller. I'm familiar. Bueller. Right. And so Ben Stein is in it. And it's like classic scene where he's like Bueller, Bueller, he plays the teacher. And he was actually a speechwriter for Ford and Nixon. He's very much and still is a kind of a conservative pundit. And he was buddies with John Hughes. Right. And he claims that Hughes was a staunch conservative as well. Well, you could definitely see that in his movies. I think so. But Ben Stein was talking about Ferris Bueller as the perfect example of your kind of Reaganomics 80s character. Saying Reagan was about freedom and Ferris was an unregulated high school kid in an unregulated world. Oh my God, he's using Ferris to make the point for deregulation. Oh yeah. Is that, that's what he's doing Oh yeah. Says there's a dash of Huey Long and Ferris, every man a king, taking the money of the rich and spreading it as joy to everyone. Okay, so like I worked really hard to forgive Ben Stein for being like that kid crying, and this is not made up, this is true. The kid crying when Nixon announced his resignation, like you can see him openly weeping in the audience. And I've worked really hard to forgive him for that because he's a pretty cool dude. But really, he's really not. <laughs> we're going to do deregulation. Win Ben Stein's money. That was funny, right? Yeah, it was redistribution of wealth. Oh, wait. <laughs> wait. Uh, you had to earn it. Okay. No, you just had to prove you were worthy. It's very different. That's where Jimmy Kimmel got to start, too. <laughs> but okay. So we've deregulated Ferris Bueller and he's out making capitalist dreams come true. One interesting thing is that the original script had Ferris going and like taking his father's like bonds <laughs> to go and spend the money. Cause everyone's was like, wow, how can he afford it? How can he do all that? First well, all, because it's just Cameron's imagination, but that's a story for another day. It is. He's in the bed the whole time. <laughs> See Cameron's dad beats him until he blacks out. And this is the fantasy he has. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for that. Oh no, this is on Reddit. It's real stuff. Oh, I, oh it's, well, if it's <laughs> on Reddit. It's gotta uh, be true. <laughs> But, I mean, you can really see this in other John Hughes films. Such as Pretty in Pink, which was released in 1986. This centers on Andy, played by Molly Ringwald, as most female characters were at this time. And Blaine, who was played by Andrew McCarthy, and Ducky! Everyone loves Ducky. 
I love Ducky. Except Don't cry. Except, except for, for Andy. Andy. Yeah. And that's kind of the rub. That's kind of the rub of the movie. She's in love with Blaine and Ducky's in love with her and this creates tension and problems because Andy and Ducky are both poor. They literally live on the wrong side of the tracks as shown in the opening sequence of the movie. And Blaine, Blaine is rich. Blaine is rich enough to wear unstructured linen blazers and get no shit for it. Blaine does plan to take Andy to prom. And this is wonderful. It's going to be so romantic. It's going to be so romantic. There's going to be awesome 80s music. She's going to like do her hair up big. It's going to be fun for everybody. However, the worst thing that could possibly happen to a rich kid happens. And his friends tease him about dating a poor girl. Oh, no. She's just a poor girl. Nobody loves her. And so he breaks the date. Now, in the movie, she marches into prom alone in her pretty pink dress. But this was not the original intention. No, another movie with a different ending. So in the original screenplay and the book adaptation, I'm sure you could order from Scholastic. Or now, like, Half.com for 62 cents plus $85 in shipping. She and Ducky actually meet outside and they enter prom together. H.B. Gomar writes... All activity on the dance floor stopped. Andy and Ducky stood proud in the silent ballroom, all eyes on them. And then finally, someone moved. The crowd parted, and Blaine walked slowly toward them. Andy takes Ducky's hand, walks him onto the dance floor. The crowd separated around them again, leaving Andy and Ducky alone at the center of the floor. Blaine thought Andy had made this night a real graduation night for him. He watched her, his eyes brimming with pleasure. At her graceful beauty. I think the debate on who she should go to prom with will forever be debated. <laughs> no, absolutely. Personally, I thought that I thought that Ducky was creepy. Like, always. I've always thought he was like a little too much of a stalker. He goes to her dad and like talks about marrying her. I'm like, that's weird. He's gonna take your fingers. Like, cut your fingers off and bring them home with him. Like, no. But a lot of people feel that Ducky would have been the right choice. But the audiences who saw this ending, the test audiences, hated it. Hated it. (laughs) So much so that Andrew McCarthy, who had shaved his head to play another role, was brought back in to film the ending that we all know today. That's why he has that horrible wig on. Now you know. That was just bad 80s hair. Oh no, that's the rest of the movie. Okay. According to Jonathan Bernstein, seeing Andy and Ducky end up together upset people who identified with Blaine, the affluent teens to which the film was being marketed, and poor audiences who wanted her to have the chance for escape. It's lose, lose. Lose for Ducky, too. Mm -hmm. So we see similar ideas, of course, echoed in another Molly Ringwald Hughes collaboration, 16 Candles. And she's rich. She's rich. Come Everyone's ahead. rich. But it's not like she's rich and she's like hanging out with a poor dude. It's like she's rich and he's also rich. What a twist. And they forget her birthday. They do. They forget her birthday. And that's just not fair. So 16 Candles teaches us the powerful lesson that rich people have problems too. Very important. This isn't a totally new idea. Of course it isn't. We've seen this in things like Virginia Woolf and Edith Wharton, where they talk about kind of the plight of the rich. Jane Austen. Oh, yeah. Then we have like this whole genre of Woody Allen-esque neuroses movies where people are trying to like analyze themselves. I mean, Seinfeld is a study in this. You know, like they're not trying to make it. They're trying to... It's a show about nothing. It's a show about nothing. It's the, you know, we have that moment of shows about nothing. But now we get down to the point where we have to like 
create this whole market for teens because they have buying power in the 80s. And if they have buying power, they're probably at least middle class. And so we need to explore the problems of middle class and upper class teens. And that matters so much. So the film Sixteen Candles really centers around Samantha, who is confronted with the idea that she's not earned her privilege. She's entitled to expect that her parents will remember her birthday, to assume that the boy that she likes, Jake, will ask her out. But she's also very insecure and feels that she must go to great lengths to earn everyone's attention. Still, she's not self-aware enough to realize that these trifles are hardly worth commiserating about. It's this lack of self-awareness that defines the character in the film and in arguably whose entire oeuvre. You can spell that, right? O-U-V-R-E? I was being Edmund Kemper. No. Go watch Mindhunters, people. Go watch it. So we see this like class-conscious relationship once again in The Breakfast Club. Where she's rich again. She's rich again here, folks. But Buckle now, up. But now she's got Bender, who's not an adorable poor person, but a... Rough and tumble rebel. That's right. You know what he got for Christmas last year? A carton of cigarettes. Exactly. Do you know what Claire got for Christmas? Diamond earrings. Do you know what he gets at the end of the movie? One of them? Ah, okay, so that's really weird symbolism. Let's take a minute. Let's just take a minute to unpack this. So Bender is this poor kid who's like abused by his parents and very tragic, but also has like obvious leadership qualities and kind of rallies this group to, you know, get to know one another and without meaning to like opens the empathy jar and they all share their problems and find out that there there's more that brings them together than that separates them and blah, blah, blah. Good. And um, Claire is just, they call her the princess. Therefore, her is being stuck up and she's spoiled and blah, blah, blah. You know, she's attracted to Bender because he is something that she's not ever been exposed to. And she likes his vulnerability and his honesty. And we assume they have sex. Do you assume they have sex? I do. They make fun of her for being a virgin. And it's like he takes that problem away, takes that stigma away. And so, like, in payment for that, she gives him part of her affluence, part of her status. Wow, it's kind of fucked up. <laughs> right? Right. I love these movies. I love these movies too. Like we sound like we are like bitching about them, but I really love them so much. Like I will John Hughes out with anybody. You, but the thing is you can love a movie and still look at it, look at the subtext. Be critical like, about it. Oh think, my. Think critically, right? And of course all of these movies end in your like freeze frame, happy moment. That these Hollywood movies have to have. Right. In Breakfast Club, we get Bender punching his fist into the air, which is amazing. And I do it all the time in it's reference true. to that. It's true. You know, 16 Candles ends with that almost kiss. And it's this moment where you've got the rich boy, we've got the rich girl. He's like, come in and remembered her birthday where her family didn't and kind of taken on the fraternal role, which is weird. Uh, but yeah, whatever. And, you know, we just we just stop. We just stop and say, like, it's it's right there. It's happy. It's done. Nothing bad will ever happen to them. So another analysis. Weaned on optimistic Reagan-era perceptions of social mobility, the audience wanted to see the poor girl get the rich boy of her dreams. They didn't care about the dignity of the oppressed. Hughes caved and changed the ending, and the poor girl got the rich boy. And before we leave our 80s movies, and we have to talk about this, like, other quintessential scene that we haven't yet is like, let's go to the mall. Forget fourth period. I want shoes. Come on. You need a makeover. 
One author said that the mall in this context has provided a social commentators with one of the most enduring metaphors for American society in the 1980s. Because when malls originally came about, they were these kind of like safe havens, festival market atmosphere that could help kind of boost economic potential for these troubled areas. But by the mid-80s, after homeschool and workplace, the mall was where Americans spent most of their time. I'm reminded of every single time we walked into the big mall in Baton Rouge and you get capitalism. <laughs> I forgot about that. For these kids, these teens, they can escape school. They can go and be kind of adultish right. there. And they can spend not their money, but that purchasing in that space where they're kind of free to be their own people, but of course in this very specific context, offers kind of a possibility, an idea of possibility. Right, and you can go to the mall and become a whole new person. I mean, for Christ's sakes, think of all the makeover moments in teen movies. And you can just take your glasses off. What? As I wear my glasses? (laughs) Sometimes in these movies, too, you see, like, the two sides of the coin of the mall. Because you have those people that go and they can go and get a makeover. But then you also get, like, the mall rats. Right. And they are marginalized. Like, they are not the empowered group. Right. They're the ones that just kind of hang out Mm -hmm. and stare at the magic eyes. It's a schooner. I don't see the boat. (laughs) Even that term is used to draw a line between the worthy, those who have buying power, and the unworthy, the ones who just... Use the facilities and contribute nothing, even if they work there. Somebody's got to work at the Orange Julius. So you can see that there was like a direct interplay between entertainment and economics during the Reagan years. And that sort of was heightened by his own ties to his Hollywood past and show business in general. Movies had made Reagan. His image was in turn indelibly stamped on the American cinema during his tenure in office. First in the guise of economic conservatism and relentless optimism. Representations of class and social mobility evolved considerably in films during this period, often mirroring economic and political landscape at the time. So the era did start with this unbridled optimism. But then there was insider trading, and then there was Iran-Contra, and then things became a little more cynical in regard to class presentation. You start to see movies that kind of show the other side. I mean, I thought like Mallrats, the early 90s. Yeah, is a good example of that. Oh my god, the 90s in general is a great example of that. Grunge is an example of that. I mean, and even like Clueless, where you have a very affluent character, she's presented as being vapid and flawed and has to be redeemed by not getting what she wants. And the way she first tries to do that is by like giving her things away. Mm-hmm. But this era, this 1980s era, will always be defined by Ronald Reagan, like it or not. Even in the 80s, people are writing about this. And people love Ronald Reagan. Reagan understands, as our media and intellectual elite do not, the most prevalent feature of American character is forward-looking optimism. And Reagan himself really personified these central tenets of the economic policy that would win the trust of most Americans. That dream of social advancement, the rewards of hard work, and the virtuous pursuit of wealth. Reagan often touted that he himself had grown up in a family that was poor. He was the perfect example for upward mobility. But despite his family's poverty, Reagan believed that success was there for the taking. 
But, you know, we've been talking about a lot of fictional characters and fictional ideas, and it really is important to look at those things because they show us kind of where we are as a society at especially that time. Mm-hmm. We have our mindset and our ideas with wealth and upper mobility, and you see the rise of these kind of stories at certain times. You see it late 1800s, early 1900s when you start to actually have a middle class, mm-hmm. and then you see it come up again after World War II when you have... People coming back from war, and there is a lot of social mobility available due to the GI Bill and due to the bustling economy from after the war, even though there was a brief little dip. Forget the dip. Forget the dip. Uh, Truman doesn't want you to talk about that. The buck stops there. And then you see it again in the 80s when these ideas really become a huge Part of national character. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, embodied by the president. But it's also important to look at some of the real people. We've talked about a few that really embody these ideas and embody all of these ideas and really take home that, like, eccentric millionaire title. Oh, and if we're going to talk eccentric billionaires, like, give give the man his B. B's too. There's really only one. Like, literally? Literally? I'm being Chris Traeger. If you Google eccentric millionaire, about your third result will be this man's name and his wiki page. And that's none other than Howard Hughes. Howard Robard Hughes Jr. He was born actually in September, but he had records changed to say December 24th of 1905. Why? Oh, we're going to be asking that question a lot. Okay. I'm on board. I'm in the spruce goose. I'm ready to go. Don't call it that. It's the H4. Hercules. Hercules, Hercules. Anyway. Uh, Speaking of movies. His father, Howard Robard Hughes Sr., had invented a drill bit that could go through rock for oil exploration. And he literally made a fortune during the oil boom. Howard was called Sonny as a young boy. And he was attending, in strong scare quotes, Caltech, which involved mostly playing golf when his mother suddenly died in 1922. And less than two years later, his father died. Oh, so he became the heir to a fortune. Yes, because he was an only child. And so 18-year-old Howard was left an orphan and the heir apparent, and he went on to buy out all the other beneficiaries of his father's will and, one, and tried to gain sole control of Hughes' tools. And by May 28th of 1924, he had done just that. So he was starting early. Yes. His father's will had stipulated that he was not to come into his inheritance in full until he was 21. However, he'd been studying Texas inheritance laws and he'd found this loophole where you could be declared an adult at 19. And he'd also been playing golf with a judge who would rule on his case. No way that factored in. No. So on December 24th, his birthday, he applied to be declared an adult. And two days later, he was all grown up. He soon married a local Houstonian classmate named Ella Rice. Like Rice, like the university in Houston. Yes, like that. And negotiated the deal with her mother. Ella was actually in love with another guy and wasn't really into it. But mom was like, uh, honey, he's rich. Smart mama. <laughs> yeah. Not faulting mama. Um, it's and, a classic 80s movie. Yeah. He also drew up a will on May 30th of 1925, two days before his marriage. In addition to taking care of his servants and leaving money to his soon-to-be wife and taking care of a couple of 
aunts and uncles and some friends. He also left the bulk of his estate transferred to a corporation named the Howard R. Hughes Medical Research Laboratory based in Houston. Purpose of the business was to be the prosecution of scientific research for the discovery and development of antitoxins for the prevention and specific remedies for the cure of the most important and dangerous diseases to which this section of the country may be subjected. Howard specifically cautioned this corporation was not to be a school for doctors, but rather a laboratory devoted to discovery and development. He is 19. Yeah, he's very forward thinking. Now, on January 5th of 1925, he composed a list on the back of a receipt from Foley's Men's Store of, quote, things I want to be. Number one, the best golfer in the world. Number two, the best flyer, scratched out, pilot. (laughs) Three, the most famous producer of moving pictures. And with that, he and Ella were off to Hollywood. He'd begun to tinker with all sorts of things in the motion picture industry after he had an uncle who was a screenwriter that brought him onto set one day. And that was that. For all intents and purposes, his marriage to Ella fell apart in 1928 because he was very rude and very distant. Literally, most of the time, he had this penchant for shipping her back to Texas when he grew bored of her. Go visit your mama mm-hmm. for a year. Yes. He was difficult and elusive, and he was also having affairs with young starlets ad nauseum. That's going to keep happening. So Ella Hughes went home to Texas, where she filed for divorce from her husband of four years, citing excesses and cruel treatment. Uncontested divorce was granted on December 9th of 1929. In her divorce settlement, Ella received $1.25 million payable in five installments of 250000 At the time, Hughes' estimated worth was just over $30 million, and he thought he'd gotten himself a bargain. Guess cheaper to keep it in work for that situation. Nah. Now, around this time, he became involved with this actress known as Billy Dove. She a young starlet? Of course she was, and she was known as the American Beauty. I'm sure that's what the studio called her. Now, the problem was that Billy and, well, technically Howard at this moment, were still married. Uh Uh-oh. Billy was married to this man named Erwin Willett, and he was a cantankerous Tinseltown director with a bad temper. But Howard came up with a plan to buy him off and get Billy her divorce. Who's going to buy him a woman? <laughs> kind of. No. Kind of. No. Willett originally demanded half a million dollars, but Hughes negotiated him down to a cool 350000 Another good deal. <laughs> However, Willett demanded that the money be delivered in a briefcase in cash in $1,000 bills. Did they meet in an alley? He like sent his accountant to go meet him in an alley. And then he and Billy moved to a shack in Nevada with a dirt floor. And they were hoping to accelerate the divorce process because everyone knows you go to Nevada to get a quickie divorce. We've all seen Mad Men. And they stayed for a few weeks living and working with a local farmer and his wife until they learned that this residence of theirs did not technically qualify as a residence under Nevada law. And so they moved back to L.A. In the meantime, Howard had been working on Hell's Angels, which is a film about World War I fighter pilots in a love triangle. Very Pearl Harbor, this whole thing. He'd already had to convert the film from a silent movie to a talkie. This was an arduous process because it involved having to recast his lead actress. Why? Well, you've seen Singing in the Rain. Yes. No, it's not that. She had a thick accent. Oh, so you could not be a starlet in the talkies. I probably could in some films. in ja- the wind. Genre films. <laughs> but, but he didn't want to pay for a A-list Hollywood celebrity to come in and do this movie. So he went about trying to find an unknown starlet and in this process discovered Jean Harlow. 
Va-va-voom. Exactly. And he also coined the term platinum blonde to describe her hair. Now, the flight sequences are very innovative, and they're still considered an incredible achievement. But the actual film, like the plot and the dialogue and things like that, were not as groundbreaking. And editing the film was quite a demanding process, because for every one foot of film that Hughes used, he threw away 166. Wow, that's burning some money. Oh, yes. He was originally planning on just producing the film, but he took over the director's chair after two other directors left because he was so demanding. It's not a good sign. Now, the total cost of the film, not including marketing, premiere expenses, and cost of prints, was $3,866,000. What's that today? It's roughly $60 million. So, like, what were they spending on movies usually? Around 250000 Oh, wow. So he was spending... 12 times the normal amount. Yeah. Now, around this time, Billy noticed that he was having trouble with his hearing. And he had actually had a disease called otosclerosis, which is a gradual thickening of the bone in his inner ear, which would lead to deafness if left untreated. I know you're not going to believe me, but I promise it's true. He actually had a diminished sex drive. What That's the, that the euphemism. Like it says, though not actually impotent. Interesting. Yeah. So that ran very counter to his public image. Man, playboy. Uh-huh. And she would eventually leave Hughes without great fanfare and marry another man and start a family. But Hughes had moved on to his next project, his next film, Scarface with Al Pacino. Just kidding. What? <laughs> Just kidding. Boris Karloff's in it. Ooh. Ooh. But it created quite a stir. It was loosely based on the life of Al Capone, who was still alive and writing in edits. Was he in jail? Uh-huh. Okay. But Will Hayes, you know. The Hayes Code. Yeah, that guy. Like basically the censor of Hollywood. Had a fucking coronary, and everybody lost their minds when they saw what he wanted to do. There were machine guns, there was blood, there was gore, there was violence and sex and, you know, the good stuff. And Hughes rejected all of his suggested edits, along with his suggested title change. Will Hayes wanted to call the movie Scarface, colon, Shame of the Nation. Nice. So rejecting all of this, he's decided that he was going to just premiere the movie him, his own damn self in New Orleans. And the anti-censorship crowd just loved it. They ate it up. And he became their hero for a day. But around the same time, Hughes was becoming besties. Besties? Besties with Cary Grant. And it seems like that's one of his only, like, longtime male friends. Like, they actually were buddies. And he decided that he was going to set the coast-to-coast aviation record. Could he have been taking, you know, flying lessons? He flew some of the stunt planes in Hell's Angels. It was just kind of a thing he'd been doing. Well, he was going to be the best flyer pilot. Yes. And so, one day, he just did. He just flew from California to New Jersey in 9 hours and 27 minutes. But he didn't notify anyone that he was going to do it, and only the official timer greeted him when he landed. He told interviewers later that night, I wanted to go to New York, so I tried to see how fast I could do it in. Smartass. <laughs> Charmin. Now, in 1936, he was on a date with a socialite named Nancy when he hit a pedestrian with his car and killed him. What? It was deemed accidental, but it rattled him. <laughs> it seems like it really was. Like, they did a legit investigation. Nobody liked him enough to, like... Uh, I bet they liked his wallet. Okay, fine, fine. By that October, he'd begun wooing Catherine Hepburn. This was his next project. So he saw her out playing golf while he was flying overhead in his plane and landed on the green at the Bel Air Country Club. 
and ask if she, she and the person that she was playing with needed a third. Smooth. Is it? Sure. It's way over the top. Isn't that kind of all of him? Catherine later wrote, Howard and I were indeed a strange pair. He was sort of the top of the available men and I of the women. We each had this wild desire to be famous. I think that this was a dominant character failing. People who want to be famous are really usually loners, or they ought to be. He was awarded the Harmon International Trophy for Outstanding Aviator in 1936 by FDR in the Oval. Just knocking those checklists off. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, while dating Kate on January 19th of 1937, he broke his own coast-to-coast record, flying from California to New Jersey in 7 hours, 28 minutes, and 25 seconds. Now, on this flight, his oxygen malfunctioned, and he almost died. He had to break the mask off and suck oxygen directly from the tubes while he was flying. And this record actually held until after World War II. Now, on March 3rd, he drew up a new will. He removed his ex-wife. Take a little while to do that. Well, I don't think he ever thought he was going to die until right now, because <laughs> he had some plans. But in typical Hughes fashion, this was not just a will. It was also like a four-act play, because he had it placed in a safe deposit box in Houston. And he was actually in Los Angeles at the time. And so the letter with a signed signature card was addressed to Houston's First National Bank, it stated that there were two envelopes enclosed, the first containing instructions and the second containing his will. Neither envelope was to be opened, but rather they were both to be placed in a safety deposit box with two keys to be sent back to, the, back to Hughes in care of his attorney. One key was to be kept at the attorney's safe, and the other key was to be given to Hughes himself. And he did all of this just in time to set the round-the-world aviation record. He completed his circumnavigation of the globe in just 19 hours, 8 minutes, and 10 seconds. If you were going to attempt to fly around the world in less than 24 hours in 1937, you, too, would fix your will. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he was in all the papers for that. Ticker tape parade. Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. He and his crew had the, you know, traditional ticker tape parade through the streets of New York City. It's estimated that 1,500,000 people attended. Hughes and Hepburn's relationship began to wane after that. They, they actually remained kind of pleasant friends. That's surprising. I know. He had a little fling with Betty Davis around this time and tried to hit on Joan Crawford, but she thought he was gay. Oh, Joan. <laughs> Of course she did. She's so mean. But anyway, and others. And then there was World War II. When war broke out, Hughes was exempt because he was a military supplier. But Hughes' tool was in booming business with the U.S. Department of Defense. He even invented flexible ammo strips for airplane guns. So that's like the belts they Uh feed into the guns. Yeah. They're still basically used today. Wow. Now, around this time, he began to work on the outlaw, which was in real danger of becoming a vehicle for newly discovered actress Jane Russell's breast. Why was it in danger? Because he thought it was a real movie. Oh. Yeah. We can't have breasts in those. They can't be the defining characteristic. Evidence of this is seen. In his memo to Howard Hawks, then director, Howard, I know you're making every effort to showcase Miss Russell's breast, but I'm just saying that they seem artificial and padded, which I know they are not. I want to see the tops of her breast move as she moves not be held in place as if they were supported by concrete. This is an engineering problem. I will handle it personally. H.R.H. 1940. What does that mean, he'd handle it personally? Well, he he built her bra. 
Ah, over the engineer. Uh-huh. And so does she like actually wear it? She said she just replaced it with her own when he wasn't looking. <laughs> no one noticed. Yeah. They look great, darling. He was also courting a woman, a girl, named Faith Domergue, who is a 16-year-old starlet. In October, he proposed to her. Now, another funny thing happened that same October, he also proposed to Ginger Rogers, never informing Faith about Ginger or Ginger about Faith. Oh, and he was also seeing 16-year-old Gloria Vanderbilt. He's going to get in trouble. Well, he'd gotten permission to date both Gloria and Faith from their mothers. Oh, well, of course. He's such a gentleman. Now, Hughes installed separate telephone lines in his house and gave each woman a unique number and also notified his secretary to make sure that all dates were kept secret and separate. But Ginger eventually found out that he was seeing Faith. And on the night where he was in another car accident, Hughes is in a lot of car accidents, she was called to the hospital. And the following scene ensued. Half an hour later, Ginger Rogers stunned the nurses, patients, and visitors of the Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital when she strolled in unescorted to the lobby. She took the elevator to the fourth floor, walked past the nurses' station without saying a word, and entered room 418. The curtains were drawn against the day, a slit of light escaping to cut its way through the darkness and cast a shadow upon Hughes lying in the bed his head stitched and bandaged. Walking directly to the bed, Ginger slammed down the bag containing the ring into his chest and announced, Faith Domergue needs this more than I do. Oh. Now we really are hitting that eccentric hues very early on. Mm -hmm. But we've not gotten to where it really goes out the deep end. No, no, no. And that really most likely starts in April of 1941, where he developed this rash on the palm of his hands. So he visited his doctor. Howard called the doctor and the doctor said, no more monkeys jumping on the bed. Similar, because he thought, since he was such a genius, that he knew what was causing it. Yeah. This must be the film equipment, the chemicals used. But oh no, Dr. Mason quickly told him he knew exactly what the problem was. Syphilis is my third case this week. Yay. So he was given penicillin, told he was contagious. Was told not to have sex or shake anyone's hand. For a while, though. That sounds like such a euphemism. No sex or shaking hands. For a while. So Hughes really loses it. He also demands being given colloidal silver, which he takes, which also causes tons of side effects. Disorientation, fever, stomach cramps, etc. Et Can also give you a rash. Well, that seems counterintuitive. Counterproductive. He was sure that he had contaminated his clothing and sheets. So he, be, he returned home and began a systematic cleansing of the entire house. His housekeeper scrubbed the floors with lye soap, and they covered all the furniture in the living room and study with freshly purchased white sheets. Hughes packed away his huge wardrobe into canvas laundry bags that he padlocked and placed on the front lawn. Not crazy yet, right? This is it. This is the, the moment. moment. So all of his fancy Brooks Brothers suits and tuxedos... We're all padlocked on the lawn, along with all the bed linens, pillows, blankets, spreads, and duvets, even ones that Hughes had never touched. Noel Dietrich was summoned from Houston, one of his aides, and told to burn the locked bags and bury anything that remains. It's probably what I would do. I can actually, yeah. It's like the syphilis everywhere. Not your doctor, I don't care. Burn it all. Poor Velveteen Rabbit. That's right. I'm not getting polio or measles. Whatever he has, whatever social disease that bad rabbit had. But Dietrich later revealed that he did not do this and donated them all to the Salvation Army. 
He was also disposed of his collection of cars, including a Duesenberg, a Rolls Royce, and his Packard convertible. In their place, he bought a used 1938 Chevrolet with a cracked mirror and chipped windshield, and a new Pontiac that was immediately sent to Houston, where the Hughes Tools engineers were told to install an air purifying system with washable cloth filters. So when all of this purge was done, what did he have left? One black suit, one black tie, one black belt, two pairs of slacks from Sears, one pair of shoes, one stained terry cloth robe. You think you'd be worried about that stain? Oh, oh, we're about to transcend logic. (laughs) We're just buckle up. About to? I think we have. We've crossed the threshold. Five new white cotton dress shirts, one drawer full of underwear and socks and monogrammed handkerchiefs, and one lucky fedora. It was the hat he always wore when he flew, which may not be as lucky as he thought. But anyway, so Faith Domergue was very curious about all this, and she asked, what's up with all the transformation? And she's told, old clothes are more friendly. And she cool took it. Hook, line, sinker. But Hughes' crazy behavior began to get out into the press, and the outlaw bombed, even with those breasts in it. Well, it was panned by critics. It made money. Oh, right, right, right. No, you're right. I don't mean to <laughs> sway the power of Jane Russell's breast. We've all seen the pictures. Hughes also commissioned a blimp to fly over Sunset Boulevard to promote the outlaw. He's like, a giant breast over Sunset Boulevard. Just yeah. think of it. So after all of that, he goes into a deep depression and the crazy doesn't get any better. Until Ava Gardner and her southern charm pull him right on out of it. For a minute. For a minute. It's an engagement ring, Hughes smiled. Without adding the words, that I once gave Ginger Rogers, who gave it back, and now it's yours. The five-carat, square-cut emerald sparkled in the glow of the candlelight until it was sealed in darkness as Ava snapped the lid shut and pushed it back toward Hughes. What's the matter, he asked. I'm asking you to marry me. Howard, Ava answered. We are not getting engaged. And give me one good reason why not. First, because I'm still married. And second, I don't love you. And I will never love you. Hughes was used to being turned down and unfazed by the rejection. He did not, however, expect Ava's blunt response when he pushed the issue and asked, Why? Because you smell, Howard. Your collar is dirty and you stink, like a goddamn canary died under your shirt that felt so good you left it there. Southern charm. I love it. I don't know why the image of a canary dying in someone's shirt is funny. But you have to love what Faith does when she sees Howard and Ava in their car together. She drives into the passenger side at full speed. Twice. Twice. (laughs) So everyone was okay physically after the crash. But Faith would later write in her secret diary of their affair, There is a strange quirk in Howard, a stranger than all his other peculiarities. Once he's become involved with a project or a person, he cannot let them get away from his control. Once owning something, he has to own it always. And this is so strong in him. I believe it's unconscious. It is so much a part of his presence that it is like his brown-black eyes or his high-pitched voice. It is him, and it is his most self-destroying element of his character. A short time later, he crashed another vehicle, this time a plane, into Lake Mead, and one of his crew had the top of his skull severed off by a propeller. Holy shit. His body was never recovered. Another crewman died two hours after being admitted to the hospital. One was in a full body cast for three months. Hughes and one other crew member had only minor scrapes. Now, on his way home from the hospital, Hughes stopped by J.C. Penney, 
to buy some new slacks. We only had a few. Because his were soaked in blood. And the pair he purchased that night were six inches too short, but he wore them for years. He did pay everyone's medical bills and for funeral expenses of the crewmen who died. Also around this time, Elliot Roosevelt, working for the U.S. government, son of... The Antichrist. Yeah. uh, FDR. Yes. Became the liaison between Hughes Aircraft and Washington. And the pair enjoyed Hollywood quite a lot together, and Elliot even met the woman he would marry during that time. So Hughes was very involved with the military. So he was making a lot of his money at this time through Department of Defense contracts. And in all of his genius, it was time to build the Hercules. Was it his idea? Well, no. (laughs) Kind of. Depends on how you look at it. Okay. The idea came from the still mogul Henry Kaiser, but Hughes designed it. It was informally christened the Flying Boat. It was later christened the H-4, cutting out Kaiser's name from the original name HK-1, but it became known as the Spruce Goose. It was six times larger than any existing aircraft. It was not made of spruce, but birch. Why was it made of wood? Because of the wartime restrictions on metal. Uh, okay. But they really began working on it because there were fears of U-boats coming and sinking supply ships. Good fear. So it was designed big, so it can carry more stuff. Carry 150,000 pounds, or 750 fully equipped troops, or two 30-ton Sherman tanks. It was 218 feet long with a 320-foot wingspan and 79 feet high. Now, the war was wrapping up, but FDR was very curious to see if this would work and continued development. And eventually, it cost $23 million. So, around this time, we get to what I like to call Nervous Breakdown 1.5. Can you have a 1.5? I don't know if it's, it's like really the first sustained crazy, but he definitely had kind of a nervous breakdown about the syphilis. So, yes. He would deliberately scrub his hands because he could see the scars from the rash and like burns from his crashes. And he would scrub them until they bled. He stopped taking dinner in the dining room with Faith and would stay in his room for like days on end. And he also went through at this time and burned all of his old correspondence after finding that Faith had been meddling in them. And then he went on the lam for like 11 months. And during this time, only one aide knew where he was. And then he just kind of reappeared and didn't really acknowledge his absence, just carried on as if he hadn't been gone for the better part of a year. Now, at one point during this hiatus, he showed up in Shreveport, Louisiana, and was arrested while eating chocolate cupcakes and loitering at a gas station for vagrancy. hate when that happens. (laughs) He had $1,200 in his pocket, and he refused to give anyone his name. Now, according to his aide... Long, Hughes continued to refuse to speak until he heard the sound of the cell door locking. Guess that's when it hit home. Only then did he declare that his name was Howard Hughes. The detective in charge, a man named Davis, said, Yeah, and I'm Shirley Temple. (laughs) But they did eventually call Long to come get him. Even though Long had never personally met Hughes, he decided to chance it. He decided, hey, it's better to have a vagrant loose with $1,200 than to let Howard spend the night in jail. And he was given $500 for his trouble. Also, during this time, the FBI was investigating him because they believed that he and Elliot Roosevelt had obviously been in cahoots to defraud the U.S. government through their spruce goose caper and other shenanigans. Now, they did not find out that Hughes was part of some high-level conspiracy, but they did find out that he was dating Lana Turner. Now, around the same time, Hughes met Jean Peters, who was a very down-to-earth actress that he would later marry. 
and she described him at that time as the most lost soul in the world. But she said it in a wistful way, like it was intriguing. <laughs> I bet she didn't keep saying it in no. a nice way. But then there was another plane crash. He crashed his plane into the residential area in Beverly Hills. His XF-1 hit the home of a dentist and actress and a lieutenant colonel at a speed of 155 miles per hour before promptly bursting into flames. How did he survive that? He was badly injured, and he went into shock upon arriving at the hospital. And he did require skin grafts for some of his burns. And he was started on a hefty diet of painkillers during that hospital stay. That's going to be key. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. One of his aides later said he loved publicity but tried to act as if he didn't. Hughes himself carefully orchestrated the visitors who sat patiently for an audience with a recovering pilot, Lana Turner, Linda Darnell, Jane Russell, and Ava Gardner among them. After he was certain that the press had ample opportunity to seize their interviews, Hughes would send Odekirk to announce to the faithful that Hughes remained critical and too broken to receive visitors. Now, after his recovery and leaving the hospital, he also had a fling with Rita Hayworth, who was newly separated from Orson Welles. And then she called to tell him that she had syphilis. He got syphilis from Orson Welles. No, this is another syphilis, and she got it from... Orson Welles. An actor with the last name Bay. You can't prove that. That's what she said. I say it's from Orson Orson Welles. Welles. Orson Welles syphilis, the worst syphilis of all. I'm sure that drove him into some more craziness. Mm Mm-hmm. And so this led to, of course, a repeat performance of the bagging, locking, burning bathing, cleaning ritual that we saw earlier. So, like you said, he was being investigated for possibly defrauding the government. Because the the goose never flew. The goose. The goose has to fly. So, he was going to prove that he had not defrauded the government. And the only way one can, flying a giant airplane. (laughs) I'll show them. So, he said the Hercules was a monumental undertaking. It's the largest aircraft ever built. It's over five stories tall with a wingspan longer than a football field. That's more than a city block. Now, I put the sweat of my life into this thing. I have my reputation all rolled up in it. And I have stated several times that if it's a failure, I'll probably leave this country and never come back. And I mean it. So on November 2nd of 1947, he, again unannounced, decided to take a flight during a taxi test. Along with crewmen and journalists on board, the Spruce Goose flew just over one minute at an altitude of 70 feet. This proved his big-ass plane could fly. He continued to pay a full crew and keep the plane flight-ready for the rest of his life, spending a million dollars a year. But it would never fly again. Now, at this time, he also bought RKO Studios and TWA. Yes, and he made a... um habit, a hobby, I guess, if you will, of losing money at RKO. Oh, good. But Noah Dietrich, his head man in charge, second in command, said that it was a comparatively cheap distraction and it kept him occupied. So in 1950, he began what would be a relentless memo writing campaign to his staff. He would write these out longhand on legal pads, and then they would be handed to his secretary, Nadine Henley, who would type them up and put them in an ever-growing instruction manual for all of Hugh's aides. An instruction manual? Oh, yes. The first of these memos read, First use six or eight thicknesses of Kleenex, pulled one at a time from the slot in the box. Then fit them over the doorknob and open the bathroom. Please leave the bathroom door open so there will be no need to touch anything when leaving. The same sheaf of Kleenex may be employed to turn on the spigots 
so as to obtain a good force of water for cleaning. Good. Uh-huh. This is definitely a start of something good. Oh, yeah. And it's going to keep getting better. So then he began pursuing a 20-year-old Mormon actress named Terry Moore. And she was sometimes called Helen by Hughes and her family. And she would not sleep with him unless they were married. So he took her out on a boat into international waters and married her after a year of trying to get in her magic underwear. Ah, that happens. But he asked her not to mention it for the sake of both of their careers. That's a red flag, folks. And she listened and didn't tell anybody. But she eventually got fed up with all the secrecy and Hugh's weirdness and decided to marry this famous football player named Glenn Davis, who was a West Point graduate (laughs) and a Heisman Trophy winner, and also played for the L.A. Rams. Because she had decided that their marriage wasn't legal, and courts would later agree. She went forward with this marriage mainly to make Hughes jealous, but he called her bluff. Upon seeing the engagement announced in the newspapers, Hughes called Terry to his bungalow and presented her with a present. A big white bag full of various sizes of contraceptive diagrams for her honeymoon. Oh, it gets worse. He said, you can have your fling, Helen, but you mustn't get pregnant. If you do, your nipples will get all brown instead of pretty pink and you'll get stretch marks and I can never take you back then. (laughs) Gem of a man, this Howard. Thing you need to know about Howard Hughes. There's more. (laughs) There's more. He hated communists the way Indiana Jones hates Nazis. And at the time... The House Un-American Activities Committee. Was in full swing. With our favorite buddy, Senator McCarthy. Have you no decency. Now, eventually, the House Un-American Activities Committee targeted the writer, Paul Jericho, who had written the Las Vegas story for Hughes. And when they asked Jericho if he was a member of the Communist Party, he refused to answer. Hughes fired him and removed his name from the movie's credits. But then the Screenwriters Guild tried to sue. Now, Hughes claimed that Jericho had violated the morality cause of his contract. And on April 6th, Hughes announced that he was curtailing all production RKO until he could get the communism problem resolved. Easy peasy. With the announcement, 108 employees were laid off, with Hughes labeling them as innocent victims of Hollywood's communist problem his mind seething with a mixture of ideology and irritation of his knowledge that, quote, a goddamn commie was working on his payroll. He decided to sell the studio rather than chance it again. Now, he went on to become a very public champion of the anti-communist cause. Richard Milhouse Nixon, then a senator, made note of it in the official congressional record, stating that Hughes had taken a stance to establish the principle that no industry needs support those whose loyalty to this country is questionable. Well, I'm glad that Howard Hughes and Richard Nixon are deciding people's morality. Uh-huh. Yeah, these are the men that I want to tell me how to live my life properly. Well... We don't want you getting stretch marks now. (laughs) I would never take you back. Mm, We've tested this theory. (laughs) So in a speech to an American Legion in Hollywood, Hughes said, in spite of all the movement to whitewash the industry, to say that there is no red influence in Hollywood, to sweep this matter under the carpet, to hide it and pretend it doesn't exist, in spite of that, there are a substantial number of people in the motion picture industry who follow the party Line RKO was sold at a loss, and Hughes moved on with his life. So let's see some more instructions. From 1955, before opening the door to the room, the third man is to stand with a folded newspaper in his right hand and rapidly wave it for at least one minute to eliminate the possibility that flies will enter the room. Using eight Kleenex, 
placed in the left hand, the man who is rapidly waving the newspaper will knock on the door. When HRH responds, the man will open the door, using the hand with the Kleenex. The door is never to be opened further than 12 inches, nor longer than 10 seconds at a time. This will allow a second man enough time to enter the room. This was also the era of starlet grooming. Even though during his ownership of RKO it hadn't been much for making movies, it was enough to inspire hope and compliance in many aspiring actresses. Now, Hughes kept these young women in various apartments and hotel rooms throughout Beverly Hills, Brentwood, Westwood, and Hollywood. But less well-known are his very detailed, meticulous notes. Here's an example. Julie Altman goes by Julie. Mother, Norma Louise Trevor, brunette, 35D, size 6, shoe 6 medium, 5-3, Perino's Tuesday. Likes white roses, no ice cream, no chocolate, bad skin. This guy's such an asshole. <laughs> now, these girls were not allowed to outside dates or casual contact unless it was approved by Hughes, and they became virtual prisoners for as long as they were willing to tolerate the conditions. And they realized that they were not going to be in any movies or be on any records or be in any television shows. They would eventually go home. Dietrich compared Hughes' collection to a garden of bonsai plants. They were all gorgeous to look at and been trained and manipulated to meet Howard's version of perfection, he said. Howard liked to look at them and appreciate their beauty. In one way, he was the ultimate collector. Where others had stamps, Howard had girls. Like it's a hell of a backhanded compliment. <laughs> it's weird. So Dr. Mason, the same doctor who had discovered the awful syphilis. The syphilis. Went to speak. Orson Welles. Okay. Mm, <laughs> Rosebud. Um, Syphilis. So Dr. Mason went to speak with Dietrich one night and alerted him that there were some rumblings inside the Hughes organization that Hughes was maybe a little crazy. And where did they get that idea? And that, that they might like to have him declared mentally incapacitated. Ooh. Dietrich told Mason to go to hell and Hughes freaked out when he I heard about bet. it. And so he decided that he needed a wife. Oh, that's logical. Well, it actually is. He decided that if he had a wife, she'd be his de facto next of kin, and that she could veto any plans by Hughes Tool, Hughes Aircraft, whoever, to have him committed or declared mentally incompetent. Okay. So he goes through his Rolodex. (laughs) Which starlet's not mad at me today? And he eventually comes to the name Jean Peters, who was the down-to-earth actress. And she agrees to marry him on the condition that they can live together, which gives you an idea of how crazy she knew him to be. Oh, yeah. She kind of knew she was getting herself into. Mm-hmm. But she, she thought he was interesting. She was fascinated by him. His wallet? What? I really do think she was actually fascinated by him. Okay, okay. I, mean, I could see that. Who doesn't love a project, right? So they flew into Las Vegas incognito, wearing disguises and using fake names, and got married. Now, they seldom left their suites at the Beverly Hills Hotel, which were separate suites. He would not go out for any reason, but sometimes at night, he would go to the Golden Screening Room, and they actually went there to celebrate their anniversary. Jean was dressed up for the occasion, and Hughes was in his dirty khaki pants and standing undershirt. And he even had his favorite Barca lounger brought in so he wouldn't have to sit on anyone else's furniture. Oh, God. Now, he did eventually switch to using a projection room on Sunset Boulevard. 
And shortly after he made the decision to do this, he moved into the projection room for four months. Oh, okay. He just told his aides, like, boys, I think we're going to be here a while. And during that time, he only ate Hershey bars, pecans, and milk. Now, it took him two hours to eat this. He would, like, break every square and take tiny little bites, and it was a thing. And he stayed here for four months, spending most of his time stacking, unstacking, and lining up used Kleenex boxes. And then he went back to the Beverly Hills Hotel. This is a description of what that was like. A lot of uh, the material today is taken from Hughes, the definitive biography by Hack, if you're interested in learning more about this. So he lay on soiled sheets in a black room that buried his reality behind a cover of darkness. He was so constipated that waste hardened in a twisting colon, causing piercing abdominal cramps. He urinated at will on the walls and floor of the bathroom, unwilling to focus long enough to target the toilet. He refused to wash, he refused to dress, while ordering that movies be screened in marathon sessions that often ran longer than 48 hours without a break. During this time, over the course of three months, he produced some 142 sets of instructions longhand. Including your favorite, how to open a can of fruit. A dramatic reading. The following procedures and steps are to be followed in every detail in preparation of fruit to be used in any cakes, pies, or dessert of any kind for HRH. This work will be done in Bungalow 1C. These procedures will, will only be carried out in the event that the cans of peaches, apples, figs, etc. are obtained from the Beverly Hills Hotel storeroom or from grocery store where the handling of such cans is not or cannot be followed in accordance with HRH instructions. On same, with regard to sterility, the equipment used in connection with this operation will consist of the following items. One unopened newspaper, one sterile can opener, one large sterile plate, one sterile fork, one sterile spoon, two sterile brushes, two bars of soap, two sterile paper towels. Step number one. We're finally there. Preparation of the table. An unopened newspaper will be placed in the middle of the table to its full-size double page and placed on top of the table in Bungalow 1C. This newspaper may be one of the papers purchased from the hotel drugstore that are rejects from the HRH supply. Under no circumstances is this paper to be handled again until the can opening operation has been completed. Step number two. Wait, step two? Yes. How many steps are there? Nine. Nine steps. Procuring of the fruit can. Oh my god, this is ridiculous. The man designated to do this job goes to the hotel storeroom and picks up a can of fruit desired. In so doing, he must be very careful in not touching the bottom of the can and not touching any surface within two inches of the bottom of the can at any time. Okay. (laughs) He should grasp the center, preferably with his hand around the center of the label. You want to hear the names of the steps? Let's at least go over the names of the step. Number three, washing off the can. Number four, drying the can. Number five, processing the hands number six opening the can number seven removing fruit from the can number eight fallout rules while around the can number nine conclusion of the operation it ends this completes the operation hrh requests that this operation be carried out in every infinitesimal detail and would deeply appreciate it if the man be as careful and diligent as he possibly can be and follow each phase very slowly and thoughtfully giving his full attention to the importance of the work at hand. And he had instructions for literally everything. We talked about opening the door, how to lift a toilet seat, how to remove a bug, how to take a message. Also, 
four-page memo dedicated to the art of speaking without moving one's lips. But I think ultimately what makes these so interesting is not that he wrote them, because we can all agree that he's crazy and he's just kind of doing it. You know, like this is just the compulsion at hand. But that an entire staff of people, like received memo, typed memo up, put memo in an instruction book, read instruction book, followed instructions. People did this. Well, he was paying them. It doesn't matter. Like, yes, it does. No, I'm sorry. You Somebody has to raise their hand and go, he needs a doctor. Yeah, and someone's like, hey, shut your mouth. He's paying us. Now, he eventually left the Beverly Hills Hotel after 13 years when he saw a bill peeking out from underneath a slice of pineapple upside down cake. They he, must not have followed the instructions. He was overbilled by a dollar fifty. And so he'd rented between two and eight bungalows and up to ten rooms at a time in the Beverly Hills Hotel for the past thirteen years at the daily rate, but he found this dollar fifty surcharge absolutely intolerable. So he packed his shit and left. However, he continued to pay for five bungalows and four rooms and kept his car in the garage for the next seven years. He's logical. But he then moved to Santa Fe into a rented home with Jean. He kept a small room with a twin bed that had all the windows locked, sealed, and hung with blackout drapes. He also had three telephones with amplifiers installed. His hearing was still really bad. But Jean's room had a queen-size bed, open windows, plants, animals, and a television. This is a marked contrast, obviously, but Hughes also let go of his long-held belief that television emitted harmful radiation during this time, and he began watching the one that Jean had brought into their home. And everyone knows that TV is really good for crazy people. (laughs) One of the great moments in Hughes' history is, again, related to Richard Nixon. So while Richard Nixon had plenty of reasons to lose to JFK, Hughes played a major part because shortly before November 1960 election, the columnist Drew Pearson revealed the details of a loan that Hughes had made to Nixon's brother, Donald, for Nixonburger restaurants. In the 50s, the younger Nixon had started a chain of drive-in burger places in California, and this included Nixon Burgers with cheese. For just 20 cents. And he accepted a loan from Hughes for $205,000. During a campaign stop in San Francisco's Chinatown, the future president was convinced to pose for a photo op in front of a large banner with Chinese characters written on it. And like many people that have these kind of tattoos, he didn't know what they said. A resident eventually whispered to him that the sign read, What about the Hughes loan? The same day he got a fortune cookie with the message, Ask him about the Hughes loan. Good job, you. The restaurants folded and Don declared bankruptcy the next year. Now, let's not forget that Tricky Dick would later have his younger brother's phone tapped during the Watergate scandal. Now, Nixon really screwed up because he denied, denied, denied. It's not the crime, it's the cover-up, Nixon. Are we going to hear that again? And now he was no fan of the Kennedys because... Joe Kennedy had wooed Billy Dove while she was living with Hughes, and he never got over it. So from their home in Santa Fe, the couple eventually, Gene and Hughes, eventually relocated to a home in Bel Air. And this left Hughes very disoriented, and he got very nervous that his aides would not be able to hear him if he called for them because the house was larger. So he mandated now that an aide be on hand 24 hours a day 
and got himself a bell. <laughs> he also got a new doctor around this time, a Dr. Crane, who tried to get Hughes off the Emperin compound that he'd been taking since his hospital stay. And instead, he substituted one-grain coating tablets, which were dissolved in water and injected with a syringe. Oh, yeah, that's better. Is it? No. I was going to ask you. Is it better? <laughs> okay. So his aides pretended not to notice that he had multiple injection sites or Hughes singing, hey, Baba Rebop, hey, Baba Rebop, every time he injected the drug. Oh, God. They actually came to look forward to the song because he was very much more docile and less vitriolic and less demanding. And they really, really liked that Crane prescribed him Valium, which helped him sleep. Now, he'd gotten involved with this huge lawsuit with TWA that's like still studied in antitrust law classes. But all you need to know for the purposes of this exercise is that in order to get what he wanted, he had to appear in court in person. And that would mean leaving his hotel. His house at this point, but yes. And he'd been managing to avoid the press for 10 years now. And he did not want to be seen in public. So he decides to go all Carmen San Diego. Newsweek printed the cover story on May 21st of 1962, The Hunt for Howard Hughes. In the press accounts, he was called the most compelling multimillionaire U.S. business has ever produced. He was seen in a New York elevator, an L.A. drugstore, a Mexican Habana, and all around the Caribbean. Subpoena dodging became the ultimate game of hide-and-seek. So Mayhew, his new second-in-command, hired a Hughes lookalike named Brooks Randall to make appearances all over the world while Hughes was in his room laying naked under a sheet and getting codeine injections. Mayhew's an interesting character because he was very publicly taking on kind of the ethos and just character of Howard Hughes and like serving as this public face for the company. But he was also a former CIA operative who had been a go-between for the spooks and the mob. Hmm, that's interesting. So conservative estimates at this time state that Hughes was worth $1,432,000,000. Definitely with a B. But that didn't include his three white shirts, one pair of khaki slacks, four pairs of drawstring cotton boxers, two pairs of socks, and one pair of brown Oxford shoes. All of his personal possessions. But he was about to add a considerable amount to that total. He decided to sell TWA rather than to appear, but he was not willing to pay California taxes on the resulting profits. So he decided to move to Boston. And this was a considerable undertaking because he decided he wanted to make the trip by train the day after Thanksgiving. He left without notifying Jean that he was going and not saying goodbye to her. And the entire operation was covert. But the private train caused such a disruption during the incredibly busy travel day that the media speculated wildly about who might be on board this mystery train headed east. And he stopped the entire process by demanding that food which was not in the dining car, be served. Properly, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And so his head of security called in favors of local law enforcement and got him the 10 prime steaks, at least one inch thick, six cans of baby peas, six cans of French cut string beans, half a dozen Simmerite bananas with no black spots, six cans of mixed fruit, a vanilla cake with no frosting, and an assortment of baked pastries heavy on the Napoleons. Now, upon reaching the Boston Ritz-Carlton, he asked where the bathroom was and then peed on the floor before fading out again. He did not like Boston, and he wanted to move again. And he decided very quickly that Boston wasn't it, but he couldn't decide where it was. And about 
Halfway through Mayhew's planning on any given location, he would change his mind. But eventually, he declared, Las Vegas, Bob. Make it Las Vegas. Because Nevada had no state income tax, you see. Traveling again on Thanksgiving Day, he crossed the country by rail once more. Mayhew handled the transfer from the Ritz-Carlton to the train with ease. He used a decoy limousine and a lookalike while spiriting the real Hughes down the service elevator and out the back door. The train trip went perfectly. Now, few people knew that Mayhew was only ever in contact with Hughes by telephone. He wanted me to keep the image I had of him, not as he was, Mayhew said. He said I would never be able to effectively represent him if I ever laid eyes on him. And that's an interesting point to me because it shows that Hughes is aware of his appearance and kind of aware of his crazy. Yeah, he's self-aware. He's not like completely delusional. Yeah. So arriving at the Desert Inn in Las Vegas with five decoy limos, Hughes was moved by stretcher from his Pullman car to a van and taken in the back entrance of the kitchen. And then he moved in to the top floor. So one interesting thing about Hughes is that in his later years, he always had Mormon aides and staff. He considered them more trustworthy. He was not Mormon himself and never was. Now, while he was at the Desert Inn, they wanted to move out because they wanted the rooms back for the Christmas season. They knew these Mormons and Hughes were not going to be gambling or smoking or drinking. So they thought they could make more money by letting some of the rooms to uh, high rollers versus holy rollers. But the thing is that he knew Mayhew, who, remember, was the go-between between the spooks and the mob, and so he knew Jimmy Hoffa. And he may have called a few favors in, and suddenly Hughes was just allowed to stay. Now, he was very annoyed by this inconvenience, so he decided he would just uh, buy it. And he bought that, and then he bought the Sands Hotel, and then he bought one of the airports, and then he bought the local CBS affiliate, and then he bought another hotel, and then he bought some land, and then he bought the other airport, and then he bought another hotel and casino. Famously, he denied Frank Sinatra credit on the casino floor at the Sands when he was under contract because Sinatra was dating Ava Gardner. Now Sinatra, of course, threw a temper tantrum, flipping tables, trying to set fire to his suite, and quit. After... Being informed that Frank Sinatra quit the Sands, Hughes smiled and said, Frank who? He was really a visionary with these casinos, pretty much like predicting what they would be now, that there would be shops where people could spend, there would be areas that people could have like family activities and bowling alleys and just all these. And one big thing is he's like, one day these will be open 24 hours a day. (laughs) And he also like said Las Vegas could be like the size of Houston. One day. He also talked about video games before they were ever invented. Oh, yeah, that's so interesting. He, like, had this idea for an electronic golf game. But yeah, he was almost creating, like, this Wii Golf kind of game. It's crazy. He was ahead of his time in, in a few ways. In others, he was very behind the times. But another thing that Hughes was, like, on the cutting edge of was fearing long-term effects of a bomb blast. So nuclear tests were going on in Nevada at this time. This really freaked Hughes out. Godzilla. He was very worried about long-term radiation effects. And to this end, he wrote a letter to LBJ. And it was long and rambling. And it stated that he was not a peacenik, but he was very concerned. LBJ ignored the letter and put forward the stipulation that it should not be displayed at any future Johnson library 
ever. I wonder if it was. And during this time, he went into another deep depression. And on like one of his memo pads, he wrote, darkness to shadows, 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 26 times. And then just boxed it off from the rest of his writing with a double line. So he was sitting in his Barker lounge just going, hello, darkness, my old friend. No, he definitely didn't listen to Simon and Garfunkel. Well, he may have. Who knows? This A-bomb thing was really under his skin, and he decided that he was going to go after some of the other political candidates of the day. And he decided that he would hedge his bets and go for Hubert Humphrey. And Mayhew met him in Colorado and delivered him $50,000 in cash in addition to $50,000 in small checks to his campaign. Such a little weasel. I know. What about Bobby? Bobby, he got $25,000 and some scorn. (laughs) An evil eye. Hughes was actually watching television the night that Bobby Kennedy was shot in the Ambassador Hotel. And he was very fixated on the event. And he did not sleep until... It was announced that he was dead. He just went on death watch in front of the TV? For 24 hours. Like wearing a pink rag? Yes. And as soon as Kennedy died, he wrote Mayhew this memo expressing that he wanted to acquire Bobby's entire campaign operation. And he says, I mean the kind of organization so we'd never have to worry about a jerky little thing like the antitrust problem. Not in a hundred years. He also, thank God, said, I don't aspire to be president. Phew. Whew. Phew. <laughs> I don't think he got the message most people did from the Kennedy assassinations. No, and Mayhew was even like, uh, Howard? <laughs> Beg your pardon? He's like, surely they'll just go to Teddy. And then he did follow through with it, and they actually added the campaign chair, Larry O'Brien, to the payroll very quietly. Because he was just like, if people know about this, it won't work. And then he decided he was going to buy ABC. Because he had this vision of, like, turning it into a political engine. You know, he thought that he could influence popular opinion and sort of sway the way policy went by the way that he covered politics and current events. This guy was crazy. Right? That would never work. Not in a million years. Go play some electronic golf <laughs> like that's ever gonna exist in your 24 7 uh, las vegas casino <laughs> but in 1970 gene did file for divorce officially and hughes reacted with mild annoyance and she waived his rights to the state which is one of the reasons i say i think she may have actually been kind of fascinated with him may yeah. have like had some real affection for him or at least a curiosity to see what being married to him would be like she's just like morbidly curious person i guess i get it so much i would do this But Hughes did keep up with this almost always nude thing he had going on. (laughs) You're covering his genitals with a pink cloth napkin whenever AIDS entered or whenever he noticed. Now we get a great account of what he really looked like from an outsider from a man named Mel Stewart. Now he was a barber. Ironic. And after... So after Hugh's previous barber of 17 years gave a very revealing interview to Life magazine... He was promptly let go. Hopefully he didn't call Hoffa to help him with that one. He said that Hughes looks like Moses in this article. Well, that was just way too much information. And now Mel Stewart, the barber, had one of his wife's friends come in and ask him if he would be interested in cutting the hair of a very important man. He's like, um, sure. And brought to the hotel. He was quickly given a 5,000 page manual to read. <laughs> 
Might as well have been. Van entered the room and found he was naked with gray hair a foot down his back. It hadn't been trimmed for four years. He was paid $1,000 that day for his little trim. And Hughes liked him, so decided to move him and his family to Vegas and kept him like on retainer, paying him $75 a day to get a haircut whenever he chose. And he would do that like once a year. If even. His nails had grown long and had onychomycosis, like a nail fungus, or twisted and curved. And he spent months designing this device to keep his toes apart, the HTS-1. Now, he had it manufactured at Hughes Aircraft. It was kind of like an, a foot brace with adjustable rods for each toe. Now, during this period, Boeing and Douglas heard about this mysterious project going on at Hughes Aircraft, the HTS-1. They just knew he was coming up with this brilliant new aircraft that would make TWA the number one in the airline market. That's close. Eh. But he would scrub himself with rubbing alcohol, going through four pints bottles each day. And that was another one of Mel Stewart's duties, was going to different drugstores so as not to look crazy and buying all the rubbing alcohol. <laughs> well, good. So he wasn't just sitting around for $75 a day. I still doubt he was doing much. Yeah. Also began to urinate into mason jars, which he would cap and store for protection. Clearly. He was making witch bottles. Precious bodily fluids. Witch bottles. Now, Hughes was... Sure, that when Nixon took the White House, he was going to have massive political muscle in Washington. And he became very fixated on like testing this theory. And it was during this era of, but really, I want to see what I can make him do, that he told Mayhew, Bob, I want you to remember one thing. I can buy any man in the world. Or I can destroy him. If this wasn't true, people like me couldn't exist. He really has some insight. So when the Nixon administration was not just like bending to every one of his little whims, even though that Nixon did offer to have him down to Camp David personally and explain the safety of the nuclear test, he didn't go. But still. He should have listened to Nixon's trustworthy guy. Right? Right. He's not a crook. He began to kind of like get pissed at Mayhew. And there were a variety of reasons that this was easy to do. Because Mayhew was spending money like, he was printing it, which basically he kind of was. was, yeah. But he also just had become kind of personally defiant and difficult for Hughes to wield power over. And he was very sure that Mayhew was out to get him. Paranoia really kicked in. And so he decided to go on a grand tour, Hughes style, and contacted another aide named Bill Gay, who was kind of like king of the Mormons. And he announced that he wanted to leave the United States and that he did not want Mayhew to know about it. So Hughes and his entourage of Mormons and his prescription pad heroes made their way to the Bahamas. And when Mayhew discovered that Hughes had been smuggled out of Vegas, he immediately decided that the most logical explanation was that Hughes had been kidnapped. It's like the Lindbergh baby all over again. And so he goes to the press and like they go crazy over the story. Yeah, that's great headlines. Hughes was really annoyed by this. I can't imagine why. He thought that Mayhew was going to get his drift. Like, he was like, I'm ghosting, and surely he'll take the hint. Instead, Mayhew was, like, trying to pay ransom. He was like, I haven't texted him in, like, a week, and he's not getting it. He's just not that into you anymore, Mayhew. So in order to refute the kidnapping rumors, Gay organized a press conference via phone. I was wondering. Right? And it, Hughes says, I have not been taken, and I do not need the assistance of Liam Neeson 
or Bob Mayhew, thank you very much. He also said that he, you know, kept his nails neat and nice despite the rumors in the press that they were like two or seven inches long, whatever. And he said this while staring down his nails that hadn't been cut in like three years. It's a little white lie. And so he stays in the Bahamas for a brief while, and then he goes to Nicaragua. And while staying in Managua, the largest earthquake ever recorded in that country hit the city. And Hughes, not realizing like the magnitude of the event, protested leaving the hotel. He wanted to stay. He didn't see what the big deal was. So he's fine with an earthquake, but the nuclear test, 120 miles away. You're not going to get a giant meat and lizard from an earthquake. Okay, fine. Well, maybe it's something waking up. I don't know. Cthulhu. But the aides got him out of the hotel, held him down in the back of a car, and drove him to the summer palace of President Somoza, where he remained for that evening. And President Somoza is one of the last people to ever have a meeting with Hughes. I just thought that was really weird and interesting. And then they made special arrangements to have Hughes' private Learjet flown out of the country, like when there were no planes coming to or going from but then they go back to the u.s but he breaks his hip in august of that same year and this is really something that puts him into a final downward spiral and he had to be taken to the hospital for surgery like it was a severe multiple fracture his bones are probably so brittle Mm -hmm. from eating almonds and chocolate he had milk too and not moving okay fine and so the doctor that did the surgery insisted that Hughes have this battery of tests. And the results indicated that Hughes' muscles and organs were atrophied, barely functional, and they suggested a biological age at least 20 years in advance of his actual 68 years. He became disoriented and started lashing out at his aides. In 1975, he wrote, If you knew how much it disturbs me and how unhappy it makes me when you are completely cold and unfriendly as you were tonight, I really don't think you could turn on the punishment outlook all the way. So all I ask is that next time you get ready to give me a really harsh expression of your views, you merely take into account the fact that my life is not quite the total bed of roses that I sometimes get the impression that you think it is. Rich people have problems too. Yes. They forgot my birthday. Hughes' final memo was written on March 28th of 1976. I do not want to be bothered unless I call you. I do not want to be disturbed for any reason. Before we discuss Hughes' death, I think it's very apropos to quote a man named Drosen, who received some of Hughes' memos, who said, At once a cold-blooded tale of an entire nation's corruption and an intimate journal of one man's descent into madness. The great secret that Howard Hughes had kept hidden was not this or that scandal, not his payoff or that shady deal, but something far more sweeping and far more frightening, the true nature of power in America. And so, so accurate. (laughs) Of course, Hughes is rapidly declining in health. His drug habit is getting worse and worse. And, I mean, his sanity is completely slipping. Right, so he'd been moved to the Acapulco Princess Hotel at this point, and none of his aides would admit who had made the decision to do that. On April 3rd, he was sitting in a trance-like state, and all of the aides began to worry that he was falling into a coma, and so they summoned doctors. And Dr. Chafin, his 83-year-old physician, came to the hotel and asked them to send up a lab tech to take blood. And the results of the test revealed that he had a urea level of 104.5 milligrams, which I assume is high. Like he was in basically complete kidney failure. 
Now, Chafin did not know about Hughes's drug intake, so that complicated matters further. The next day, Hughes came to, and they walked in his room and found him trying to inject himself with codeine. But he dropped the syringe, and he lay there begging his aides to come and give him his drugs. And Norman Crane, who was another physician, arrived, and they ran out and asked him what to do, and he just walked in the room and gave him the injection and walked back out. That night, it was reported that he became critical, and they contacted an air ambulance service before having decided where to take him. And they tried to start a glucose drip because he was severely dehydrated. Because Bill Gay and company had absolutely no contingency plan or no idea, no memo on the topic of what to do if he needed to be hospitalized. That's shocking. No, because he would never admit that it could happen. But two of the aides were told to make the old man look presentable, and they trimmed five inches off his hair and his beard, and his fingernails and toenails were cut, and he was wrapped in a sheet. And then they called in a local physician, a man named Dr. Montemayor, who was absolutely appalled by the care he was receiving. And he would later say in court that he thought he died of neglect. But he stated that the man lying naked under the sheet needed to be in a hospital immediately. And the aides were like, no, 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 he's very stubborn. He doesn't like hospitals. He's like, he's unconscious. He's not going to argue with you. He checked him out and saw that his pupils were not responsive to light and that he was covered in visible bed sores and there was like an open wound on his head. And he was just like, it's now or never, guys. So very covert and careful arrangements were made to transport Hughes to Houston's Methodist Hospital. So from 5.30 a.m. when Montemayor arrived, expressing the need for transport, Hughes was not brought into the ambulance until 10.30. So five hours passed while they were shuffling around and trying to make plans. Some people say that they were shredding papers. That wouldn't surprise me. Me either. So Hughes' plane, this air ambulance, landed in Houston at 2 in the afternoon. And there was a waiting emergency crew, and it was made up of like all the top attendings at Baylor. They had brought all this special equipment, and they were all just on standby, waiting for him to get there. And they opened the plane, and they're like, he died. He died in flight. Which is sort of fitting. I could see that. But no post-mortem photos of Hughes were taken, because they were so worried that they would get into the press. Like, a final autopsy revealed that his weight had fallen to 93 pounds. He was 6'4". Wow. He was nothing. Skin and bones. Mm-hmm. His parchment-like skin had been denied sunlight for over 35 years, and it hung from his bones, which were clearly visible without any protective layer of fat. X-rays indicated that five hypodermic needles were broken off in his upper arms. His forearms, biceps, and groin area were filled with track marks from continued injection of drugs. His body oozed fluid from open bed sores. His left temple had a severed, bloody tumor, and his left shoulder was dislocated. The level of codeine in his body was five times a lethal dose. And his teeth were so loose that merely examining them caused to fall out of his gums and into his throat. So disturbing and for our eccentric billionaire, Howard Hughes. But whenever Howard Hughes died, you know, we talked about two of his wills. And after those two wills, like you said, he, he wasn't too worried about dying. So there were no other wills that anyone knew about. Or were there. Or were there. So, of course, after he died, everyone came out of the woodworks trying to claim some of his billions of dollars. He had wives emerging from everywhere, some that he did marry or did see, other people he'd never heard of, (laughs) 
Terry Moore, an actress, claimed to have married Hughes twice. Well, she married him on the boat. That's the one that married him on the boat. Right, but she could provide no documentation to support her second marriage. Because remember, the first one was declared... Illegal. Yeah. So, but she kept raising such a fuss about it that they did kind of pay her off with $400,000 by the estate. Later, she wrote a book titled Beauty and a Billionaire. Oh, Terry. That's where the, the pink nipples quote came from. I don't know if that's in the book. What happened with that? I'm going to leave a cliffhanger. I talked a lot about boobs on this episode. <laughs> we did talk about Howard Hughes. He also had, of course, children coming out of the woodworks that all of a sudden wanted to acknowledge their deceased father. One was even said to be the love child of Howard Hughes and Amelia Earhart. Well, that would have been something. It sure would have been. Even though Earhart, you know, never had any children. It was in the public eye all the time, and you would notice that. And at least two of these children were black. But people pretty much could dismiss that since he was such a damn racist. He was a dotty old racist. Yes, that's true. But now headline, Nevada State Journal, Friday, April 30th, 1976. Hughes will found. Was it? A crudely handwritten document described as the will of the late billionaire Howard Hughes was filed with the Nevada court Thursday after it's mysteriously arrived at the headquarters of the Mormon Church in Utah. Okay, well, I would say that makes no sense, but it weirdly kind of does. All he of his aides were Mormons. Mormons. Yeah. He loved him. The envelope was similar to the kind made available to tourists visiting Temple Square. It was marked personal and addressed to the president of LDS. It was discovered under another piece of mail in the public communications department and was turned over to security. Now, once it was open, it was found to contain this handwritten will and signed Howard R. Hughes, but no other signatures, no witnesses or anything like that. Hmm. So it's not notarized. He didn't do it with his attorney, which he did do from the the time he was Mm -hmm. 19. So this holographic will. What? That's what it's called. It's like handwritten, not official. So why does it make it holographic? That's the term. Oh. It would need to be verified by handwriting experts. Oh, well, they're always reliable. Now, the Mormon church was listed as a major beneficiary, while a 31-year-old Utah gas station owner was named to inherit 116th, or about $125 million of Hughes' estate. Noah Dietrich was one of Hughes' top aides. And was quite skeptical of the will. He was one of the early ones. He was like his first accountant. They met in L.A. in the early years. But he was named in the will as executor. Okay, so Noah I'm familiar with. LDS I'm familiar with. Who the hell is the gas station attendant? Melvin Dumar. Okay, well that helps. Now I know. (laughs) Well, so in a separate article it describes how this all came to be. It was something between a dream and a joke would happen to Melvin Dumar. At the time, Melvin ran one of the two gas stations in Willard, Utah. It was the sort of incident people used to joke about, and Thursday it seemed to have resulted in what they dream about. Now he said, I picked up this guy out in the middle of nowhere, and he said he was Howard Hughes, but I thought he was some bum. He remembered him as a skinny old man with a scar on his cheek and bleeding from his ear. He says he never actually believed it was Howard Hughes, but agreed to help this guy out and drove the old man to Las Vegas as requested, and even lent him a quarter before saying goodbye. It sounds so much like the Shreveport story, where he's outside eating cupcakes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you if you look at his life and put this in that context, it's not 
unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So Melvin was described as a, quote, nice Mormon boy. Oh, was he? He was always recalled to be very lucky. He would frequently go on TV game shows such as Hollywood Squares. Woo, go Melvin. Come on down. Different show. (laughs) I know. He went on that one too. I'm just making it up. His brother said, he always comes out a winner. Wait, wait, wait. Are game shows Mormon gambling? (laughs) Maybe so. Now, his sister Savella also recalled that once he convinced her to go on a game show where she won $12,000. Now, when Melvin asked her for a loan, she turned him down. She also said that he was very ambitious and outgoing guy and that he was always looking for a fortune. So that seems like a no vote. A little more background on him. He was being sued by a collections agency for several debts, including from a milk truck route he drove for a time. How do you end up owing your milk truck route money? Do you just like take it all home with you? Do you have like 75 cats? You don't eat the supply, man. You don't eat your own supply. Don't get high on your own supply. He was also arrested in the past for forging his name on payroll checks. Hmm. So, we've got a very mixed picture here. He's a nice Mormon boy who stole milk. So, within the will, there were a few other people that were listed. As beneficiaries? Yes, including the University of Nevada, of California, University of Texas, and Rice University. Okay, that's a weird mixed bag. Like, he didn't go to the University of California. He went to Caltech. Caltech. Exactly. You're right. And he never went to UT. But he did grow up in Texas. Yeah, but still. And then he had that association with Rice. Right, but he ended up hating Ella Rice. Just saying. <laughs> so all of them had a very vested interest in proving that this was right, that this was real. So you have now universities who are going to convene panels of experts and lobby the hell out of this thing, I'm sure. No, exactly, because... Even there, I mean, this is a very suspicious will. If they're able to prove it, they each get like $100 million. Yay! Like I saw an article where it was like, University of Nevada is going to open a new medical school and vet school when we get this money. So there was some very vested interest. Mm-hmm. And now the Mormon church also oh. was going to get a big chunk of money. But as some writers point out, in the grand scheme of things for the Mormon church, it wasn't that much money. And they were not as invested as the universities were. Right. Or as Hugh's family was. Because Hugh's family was like, no way. Yeah, of course not. Annette Loomis, the aunt, was named in the existing, documented, really existing in the world, Will. Right. And she would have gotten bank. Yeah. And so they wanted to disprove it. So you have these very powerful, wealthy people and organizations that are all fighting to prove that this will is real and that this random guy from Utah is going to get a 16th of it. A 16th of his fortune. That's like $120 million. Oh my gosh. Okay. And then drama ensues. Oh yeah. So, I mean, I read through like the Reno paper mm-hmm. just kind of through the year about all the articles about this because there's really not any great write-up of it, mm-hmm. of all the details. So lawyers reported to the press that the FBI had discovered Dumar's fingerprints on the envelope the will was in. Uh-oh. Now, Dumar's own attorney said that he felt Dumar lacked the education or experience to pull off such a hoax. I love when people's 
defense is stupidity. Like, it's my favorite. It is my absolute favorite. Especially, especially when people start saying it about themselves. Like, there's no way I could do that. Look how stupid I am. I'm so stupid. Give me some money. Now, so, at this point, Melvin starts to claim that he's being framed and that the fingerprints on the envelope were planted by Hugh's employees. Well, that would have been quite a coup. But also, they were pretty tricky. They were. Now, lawyers also claim his fingerprints were found on a book and Life magazine article found in the Ware State College Library. The Life article, The Elusive Howard Hughes, as revealed through his letters. Pages which contained samples of Hughes' writing were torn out. <gasps> I'm not sure if this is real or not. Like, it could have been lawyers just... Yeah, I couldn't find... There's the one piece I could not verify 100%, but have other parts that okay. make it fit a little better. So prior to this, he maintained that he knew nothing of the will. But then, after having all this come out from the lawyers, Dumar admits in deposition that he'd actually delivered this will to the LDS headquarters, and even that he had steamed open the envelope. So that's why they're probably going to find his fingerprints on the will, too. Do they find his fingerprints? Well, they say they sure did. Uh-huh. So he's still denying writing the will at all. But he sa- how did he get it? Well, he says, one day whenever he was working at the service station, a mysterious man entered. Dumar said the man arrived at about 10 a.m. of April 27th and began a discussion about the Hughes death and said, wouldn't it be nice if someone like you were named in that will? Huh. Interesting. Another twist. <laughs> Wait, stop. I'm getting dizzy. (laughs) A man comes out of the woods. Okay. Or snow. Okay. Alaska. All right. Well, there are woods and snow. All of it. So, Levain Forsyth. Sounds made up. A 53-year-old Anchorage, Alaska contractor. Mm Mm-hmm. And he comes forth, after all this has been printed out in the press, to be the mysterious man that delivered the letter. Why? Why would he say that? Uh, He says he went on several secret missions for Hughes under the codename Ventura over the past 20 years. He claims Hughes gave him the will during a secret meeting in Vancouver in 1972. During his deposition, he refused to answer any questions relating directly to his relationship to Hughes. And he took the fifth 50 times. Wow. Huh. And then he jetted back to Alaska. What in the hell is this guy doing there? Well, he ran back to Alaska because he said that he had been receiving death threats. Wouldn't surprise me. Okay, so theory. If Hughes wanted something done and wanted it to appear that he'd done it, he did have a lookalike on standby. So the lookalike does come up. Okay. To kind of contest everything. It was a different one. It's not the same one. It's Noah Dietrich said that he had been used like once. So attorneys did travel to Alaska to try to get a deposition. Because remember, if like Rice or UT is able to prove this is real. They and the money. They get money. Okay. And so they really want this guy to prove it. So they fly up to Alaska. Okay. In the 70s. Okay. And Forsyth says he received a call from a man named Dan Harper shortly after Dumar had testified. And said if Forsyth did not testify that he would be exposed... And his son's job at Hughes Aircraft would be gone. Uh-huh. Who is that? Mysterious man. Why are there so many mysterious men? So, 
after months and months of waiting on the FBI to get their forensic test back. Because mm-hmm. it wasn't like CSI or comes back in two minutes. Oh. They finally get it back. This is where they're like testing for fingerprints and all that and kind like of thing. And ink and okay. handwriting and paper and what kind of pen you use. All of that information comes out. Okay, first of all, Hughes didn't write in pen, but whatever. Ever? No, he only used number two pencils. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know that. He also didn't use apostrophes, if you care. I didn't check for apostrophes. But the funny thing in the will, there are some little oddities that make people go, ah, it's probably not real. So there are misspellings. Oh, no. Hell no. The only thing he ever misspelled, in quotes, is like uh, contractions, is because he wouldn't use an apostrophe. (laughs) Well, and he also, he mentions the spruce goose. Okay, he hated that. Hated it. Everyone hated it. He hated that name. But so the FBI... Report comes back. And guess what it shows? Fingerprints are all over it. No one's fingerprints are on it. What the hell? Whose fingerprints are not on there? And Melvin Dumar, who has already admitted that he has touched it, his fingerprints are not on there. Damn it. Well, fun fact about Hughes. He was so emaciated when he died that they had to rehydrate his fingertips in order to get fingerprints off of them. So maybe... But if Forsyth delivered it years earlier. Another thing is they revealed the envelope and the letter are written by the same pen. But they also, the will represented, quote, an unskilled attempt to copy writings of Howard R. Hughes. So investigation revealed that Dumar's wife, Bonnie, had worked for a magazine called Millionaire that was <laughs> distributed to wealthy Americans and that her job had allowed her access to Hughes memos and signature. One of the attorney... Paul Fries, who represented the paternal relatives of Hughes, said, I think the Dumar story is a story, a fairy tale. The story has some interesting ingredients that appeal to both religious people and Hollywood producers. The hope of the poor, the hope of the defeated, Cinderella-like. And now, so at the end, it was disproven as Howard R. Hughes' final will and testament, and the money was split between his family. But... Melvin Dumar is still going to get our happy ending. Wait, how? He sells his story to Hollywood. Yay, Melvin. In 1980, the movie Melvin and Howard comes out (laughs) and wins two Oscars, (laughs) including for Mary Steenburgen as Clara from Back to the Future 3. Yay! Now, there are some people contesting this actual story. There is a retired FBI detective that's gone and investigated this and has found this old pilot that says that he would fly Hughes out to whorehouses to go and see this one girl, Sunny, who had a diamond in her front tooth. He recalled, you couldn't see unless she smiled broadly. She was the class of the field. Uh Uh-uh. So why was that important that he that an old pilot came forward? Because that would say that he wasn't in his hotel room. Oh, He was, right. like, giving him trips frequently out to the whorehouses. He said, that's bullshit. I know, it is. It's um, ridiculous. And like, he's like, oh, and then they made me destroy it when I left. So I think that's ridiculous. But it's just fun little aside. Yeah. But interestingly, you know, in his will when he was, like, 19. Yes. That he wrote, he wanted to donate most of his money to... Hughes Medical Research. Which is where a huge chunk of his money actually didn't end up going after being split amongst his relatives. So this is basically like the urban legend that we started the show with. Very much so. I feel like 
There was something about the 80s that made it seem possible, too. Like when Melvin and Howard came out, when people were interested in the story. Because Hughes sort of represented that old Hollywood guard, too. Hughes was sort of the nexus of patriotism and Hollywood and capitalism in the same way that Reagan was, which is really interesting. And it really does capture the American imagination in a way that few things do. And I think that it has to, because we have to believe in capitalism as though it were a religion. We have to believe in capitalism as if it was a system... Where all problems could be solved. Absolutely. And then you get that happy freeze frame ending. We have to redeem the people who like win at capitalism. We have to make them good people. We have to make them relatable and benevolent. Because we have equated wealth with morality and superiority. And so we can't fault those that are just better at playing the game than we are. We have to aspire to be them, and we have to forgive them all their trespasses. It's a capitalist redemption story. It absolutely is. But unfortunately, for my part at least, I kind of think it's just a story, Jake. Yeah, it's probably just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.